When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hello, and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. Hello, Jason. How are things going? Uh, not bad. Not bad. Uh, enjoying, enjoying the NBA season that we've seen so far. I, uh, I'm actually in the midst of looking at the uh, NBA standings right now, where uh, our, our previous episode is about how the Washington Wizards <laughs> were, uh, you know, just this un- unbearably terrible team, and Bradley Beal and all this sort of stuff. And they're still bad, but they, they went on a nice little hot streak here, uh, going seven of a... Uh, Seven of three in their last ten games as of, as right. of this reporting. Yeah. So, I mean, they're still twelfth in the league. So let's not, you know, let's not throw them a parade just yet. But uh, we did hear from some people saying, "Hey, great job, guys, doing an episode about how the Wizards are terrible when they right. got good." So, uh, and I don't know. I hate to say it in this episode, but I really hope we don't jinx the uh, Utah Jazz in the opposite direction as we we go through this episode. So we'll see. Well, we're gonna throw them a parade anyway. Why not? I'll just throw them a parade and I like you know, parades. See what happens? Yeah, yeah, parades are good. I mean, um, who doesn't love parade? Yeah, maybe post vaccine. I, I I will attend. Uh, said parade but, uh, I mean, all right, right fair now, enough virtual but parade if it's outside yeah. Uh, yeah i don't know if i'm doing a virtual parade but i'll, I'll you know we'll see i'll wait yeah. if, if that's the uh, only parade i get I'll, I'll do that parade that's fine fair, fair do i like parades i just said i like parades i don't really think i like parades actually they're kind of terrible so uh, well <laughs> what's yeah. your stance on parades i guess i should ask before like a uh, like a short amount of parade is fine but a uh like a long parade is, is not uh it's not good. Like yeah. 20, 20 minutes of parade. Yeah. Oh, great oh for that. sure. Yeah. The problem, like, yeah. you know, so my, my, uh, my hometown, they do a big 4th of July parade and it's like right outside of my parents house, but they stretch that thing forever. I mean, that thing takes like two right. hours. Cause it's like, there's like this, you know, mile long gap. And then, Oh, here's another fire truck. And I'm like, all right, sure. I get it. Like we got it. Let's go. It, also both high schools, marching bands. Right. <laughs> like, you know. it, it helps if you can sit, if you can sit during the parade, that's also beneficial. I the, can the, sit. The, yeah. the more you can sit, the longer, I'm tolerant of the parade, I guess. Well, what so. I was able to do is I actually was able to monetize the 4th of July parade because my mom had oh. the idea of let's sell like soda and water to people walking by Ooh, and people wow. that got hot. So, yeah, it was when it was a particularly hot 4th of July and that uh-huh. thing was particularly long with as many fire trucks as possible and maybe some, you know, maybe some garbage trucks and oh, maybe even a plow or two. Right. <laughs> wow. yeah. This that's when the big money came in, when the people were getting hot, they're kind of bored. They want a sure. Mountain Dew or a water. That's that's where I came in. So yeah, I made some I made some pretty yeah. pennies uh, back in the yeah. Fourth of July nice. parade days. So I oh. guess I do like parades now that we think. All right. About it. So I, I, my official stance is parades. Okay, at times. All right. Well, speaking of money, the uh, Utah Jazz so far in the twenty twenty one season having money. They are uh, as we speak. <laughs> 27 and 8 with a 9.91 SRS. They're on pace for a 63 win season. That's a pretty big jump from 2020. They won 44 games. Of course, it was a shortened season. They would have won about 50 over a full season, 2.52 SRS. So, like a, a, a seven plus jump in SRS, you know, possibly, you know, 13, 14 uh, jump in wins if they maintain this pace. They may not. They may. Who knows? But, What's I think really interesting is that the team didn't really fundamentally change. You know, they've got the same coach, Quinn Snyder, basically the same roster. They're really only their major 
addition is Derek Favors, and he plays 16.2 minutes per game. So, so not a big change there. They just happen to be playing really, really awesome basketball, and uh, you know, for for reasons that are not necessarily immediately obvious. You know, they're not playing you know particularly faster or slower. You know, they're just better. Um, you know, they're they're better on both sides of the ball. There's not like a fundamental reason. So. We thought, like, hey, let's dig into NBA history. Let's look for instances where teams make a big improvement for reasons that are not particularly obvious. And this actually happens more often than you might expect. Um, I figured this would be a fairly rare instance, but it actually happens kind of uh, commonly or reasonably commonly. So some of this is subjective. So, you know, we may have missed your favorite instance here, but our criteria basically is it had to be at least a 10-game improvement You had to be a winning team the second season. You could not have a coaching change between seasons, and you could not add any major stars between seasons. So we dug into about six um, examples here that we'll talk about, and then we uh, went through the rest of the decades and tried to list uh, you know, any interesting case of this. We'll talk a little bit about that. So sound good to you, Rich? It does, yeah. And we had to put a few of those parameters there because, yeah, just doing like, you know, incremental, you know, coaching changes was a big one where I would find someone like, whoa, holy crap, what happened here? And it's like, oh, they don't have Jason Kidd as their head coach anymore. Okay, now I see. Yeah. It's okay. That makes, better, sense. Yeah. That makes right. sense. Mike Budenholzer is a better coach than Jason Kidd. Okay, got it. Uh, or, yeah, like you said, any sort of major stars in between the seasons. And then another thing as well is, yeah, I, I was noticing a lot of, hey, they, this team went from, you know, 15 wins to 35 wins. And it's like that. I mean, yeah, that's that's cool. That's great. But like, that's not really, you know, we're, we're talking here, you know, become a winning team. And, and a lot of these cases become, you know, major players, 50 plus wins, uh, you know, long playoff runs or deep playoff runs here with a lot of these teams. And and the year prior, maybe they were just an OK team. They were, you know, a seventh seed, a, a, a six seed. And now they're flirting with first or second seed or now that, you know, they have the ability to make it to the, you know, the conference finals or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun to kind of go through these. There was probably more than, yeah, you or I expected. But, yeah, that's fine. And it let us do some research. But I'm sure we still missed uh, uh, missed some as well and and I, I should note as well that similar to how the Utah Jazz and we kind of just go I don't know they're just winning more uh, that might happen a few times during the show too so be prepared for like alright what's the reason why this team got good and it's like I don't know they just started yeah. winning more games like you know that in a lot of my research it was you know like I don't know they just their offense was kind of the same everybody kind of scored the same but they just won more games so uh, th- that you know be prepared for that but we'll give you some background yeah. about each of these teams and try to try to identify why they got better but in some cases it, it might just be a big struggle emoji so. uh, it's, it's chemistry chemistry yes, is exactly. better. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. yes a very quantifiable thing so um, yes first uh, we're going to dig into the Cleveland Cavaliers and they actually did this on two occasions in a very short time frame so 1988 to 89, they improved from 42 wins to 57 wins, from a 1.28 SRS to 7.95, so a jump of more than six SRS, very significant. And then from 1991 to 92, they went from 33 wins to 57 wins again, going from a negative 2.3 SRS to a 5.34. Another Again, another jump of seven points. So um, same coach in both circumstances, Lenny Wilkins, same key players, Brad Doherty, Larry Nance, Craig Elo, Hot Rod Williams, Mark Price. Um, injuries contributed in a bit in these cases, so there, there's that factor there. But I, I was just kind of – I thought it was really interesting given the continent that they, that they did have that it happened to happen twice. 
Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a little strange, and especially that 1991 to 1992 team where, you know, 33 and 49 to, to 57. And, and I just found it fascinating, too, that 89, 57, and 25, 1992, 57, and 25. So the exact record, uh, right. obviously the 89 team a little bit better with the uh, 7.95 uh, SRS. But, uh, yeah, just found it very, very interesting that, yeah, kind of the same key players, same, same, you know, same coach, franchise kind of in the same – about exactly the same place that they were in 89 to where they would be in 1992 where it's like, hey, we're really good, but we're not as good as you know the Celtics or we're not as good as the Bulls. I mean, maybe the, the other players have kind of changed a little bit, but uh, no, just kind of fascinating to see it happen in, in, in such close amount of time uh, here for the Cavs. Sure, sure. So first 88 to 89, you know, the Cavs, of course, been a terrible franchise in the early 80s, you know, bad ownership, well, more than bad, awful ownership. <laughs> Historically yeah. terrible, which, by the way, oh, put right. a pin in that. We're about to talk about something here where uh, we're going to go over some of those foolish uh, trades and terrible, terrible decisions that the, the Cavaliers made. In the oh, all in right. a bit, oh, in a bit, in a bit, in a bit. That's fine, yes. Teaser. Um, making all kinds of foolish trades, embarrassing mistakes, just, you know, really, really bad. Stepien's out in the mid 80s and then things are turning around under the gun family. You know, the Cavs had a really killer 1986 draft. They had Coach Lenny Wilkins, who was excellent at his at his job, and you know had a successful stint with the Sonics. GM Wayne Embry, who was awesome at his job with the Bucks, and you know so they there were adults in the room. They were stewarding the team, you know, appropriately. Going into 1988 season, you know they got a really good young core. They got Mark Price, they got Brad Doherty, was the number one overall pick. They got Ron Harper, they got Hot Rod Williams, they got Craig Elo. They'd add rookie point guard Kevin Johnson, the '87 draft, and also for what it's worth, didn't really. Didn't play a whole lot, but I didn't really realize he played for the team. They had 23-year-old Del Curry Man, playing. They're so deep. Yeah they're, yeah, they're crazy deep here. There's, you yeah. know, we'll, we'll talk about another team, too, with the, the, the Dallas Mavericks in the 80s as well. But this is an era where there's some team. Yeah, they're not teams that, like, you were winning all the championships and kind of get overshadowed by, you know, the Lakers and the Celtics and, and you know, the Pistons and late, later in the decade. But there's some super cool, fun, deep teams. And this Cavs team is, is, is one of my favorites where they can go seven or eight deep with, like, dudes, like all really, really talented guys. Obviously, they're missing that big star, the transformative, you know, dominate the game star or whatever but real fun teams to watch and and, and just you know like you said kevin johnson he's, he's a rookie there you don't really you know he's not as prominent as, as some of these other guys and then del curry as well who would you know and later become a little bit more prominent but at this time you know just another name that you're like oh wow del curry damn they had a, right, yeah. a lot of, especially a lot of shooters i mean you talk about mark price kevin sure. johnson del curry craig elo i mean that's ron right, harper yeah. who, who ended up yeah. becoming a great three-point shooter as well that's some some good ass shooting in there uh some, that's some good shooting right there yeah um this is the last season with 23 teams you know Expansion happens in 89 and 90 mm-hmm. and, you know, and then, of course, later on. But so, yeah, this is really kind of a, you know, the, the teams would not be as deep, obviously, going forward uh, after the season because there's just, you know, the spread thin with uh, expansion. But, um, yeah, so, you know, they they're, like said, there's a lot of young guys. There's maybe a little bit of a glut in some respects. So uh, and, and as you, you said, the Cavs not really having that star. So. They go all in on Larry Nance. Uh, they uh, trade um, Tyrone Corbin, Kevin Johnson, Mark West, uh, 1988 first-round draft pick that ended up being Dan Marley, and two second-rounders uh, to the Suns for Larry Nance, Mike Sanders, and a 
88 first round draft pick in which the Cavs selected the legendary Randolph <laughs> Randolph Keys, so, of course. Randolph Keys. Yes, we all you know know about the. Yeah, uh, we don't even need to explain Randolph Keys. We, we don't need to. You know, it, yeah, it would be. We did a whole month series about. Oh wait, no, that was Bill yeah. Russell. Sorry, that was Bill Russell that we did that series about. I oh, forget, I forgot yeah. if it was Randolph Keys or Bill Russell. It was it was I, Bill Russell. Sorry, <laughs> WrestleMania makes it. I forget. Yeah, right. No, not Randolph Mania. That would be. So <laughs> yeah, that's no. why I, I was uh, for a second. I got mixed right. up. But yes, it was yeah. WrestleMania. WrestleMania. But what would, what would be our Randolph Keys? Um, you know, series name like the keys to the game. Yeah, well, that, see, yeah. I was gonna say that, but that's a little too right. Yeah, um, if he's from Florida, I don't know. Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Right, we'll, just, uh, yeah. we'll have to workshop that one. Yeah, um, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, keys to the game. I, that that that'd be the obvious one, but I think we can do better than that. I, I really think we can. So yeah, so you know, Larry Nance, you know, not a super duper star, but you know, the prior season averaged, you know, 22 points, 8.7 rebounds, 3.4 assists, you know, was all around really good player, 27 in his prime. Um, you know, was a, you know, again, not necessarily a superstar, but a good guy to build around. And, you know, you didn't know what, um, Kevin Johnson was going to turn into, obviously, you know, the other guys they gave up I mean, you know, again, the pick becomes Dan Marley, but it wasn't like they gave up some King's ransom, you know, it seemed like a King's ransom at the time for Larry Nance to be perfectly good trade. And, you know, and Nance plays, you know, seven years with the uh, Cavs and, you know, for the most part, it's really good on that team. Uh, you know, obviously Kevin Johnson gave the Suns more value than Larry Nance gave to the Cavs, but uh, you know, I, I think it's a, you know, a defensible trade, you know, no, more yeah. Than a defensible trade. yeah, like a it, solid trade. It's you know? not bad. Yeah. The, th- the, the Dan Marley being in that trade kind of hurts a little bit as well. And obviously with the right. success, the Suns would have in the early nineties, but a lot of the success came, you know, it, it was really, really helped by, you know, Charles Barkley coming into town is when they finally sure. get over that hump. And, and, right. and yeah, they were a good team for, for, for many years, obviously in the early nineties and, 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 you know, Tom Chambers definitely helps uh, as well. But yeah, no, I, I think that's a fine trade. That, that's a trade where I think sure. both teams got what they wanted and both teams got a benefit uh, out of them. So yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it over if I was the Cavaliers or, or you know, or the Suns, either way. Sure, sure. So um, the Cavs end up, fin- they are 14 and 13 in games in which Nance plays you know, for the rest of the season. Uh, they actually lost nine of the first 11 games, so not, not a good start there, but things ended up, you know, going much better from there. They, they won, they win eight out of their last nine, you know, they're in the playoffs at 42 and 40. Um, so, and all the other guy, key guy they, they got in there was um, Mike Sanders, who, you know, kind of an overlooked um, addition to this trade, but, you know, he, he was definitely a very solid player, helps keeps the Cavs above average, you know, during his two stints with the team during this era. We'll, we'll get more into that uh, in a little bit. Um, so, 88, they lose in the playoffs to, you know, guess who the Chicago Bulls uh, in five games. Uh, so things, but you know, 1989, things are going to, um, go a bit better and, you know, 57 and 25, they got a full year of, um, Larry Nance, you know, the roster largely, you know, the same, um, you know, not a real, they, they, they get Chris Dudley, uh, you know, for, uh, <laughs> he's off the bench, but, uh, you know, not, not really any, any big changes there, you know, they get true Rollins, you know, but, um, Pretty much the same. Oh, and, well, then, and then of course the legendary Randolph Keys. You know they managed to uh, to keep Randolph as well. So um, then they, um, as you mentioned, fifty-seven wins. They had the best SRS and net rating in the league. Uh, they actually finished tied for second in the NBA in wins behind the sixty-three win uh, Pistons. Uh, they jumped from fifteenth to ninth in offensive rating and fifth to second defensive rating uh maintaining the slow pace they finished among the five slowest teams in both seasons whether they had um uh lenny wilkins or of course um later with mike fratello they would uh, be an extremely slow team uh, even more so with fratello yeah oh my god historically slow yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> yes 
And, um, yeah, and you know, obviously the league would become tremendously slow over the next decade as well. But um, anyway, the postseason result being the same in both cases, they lost in the first round of the Bulls in five games, 1989 being the shot where the sixth-seeded Bulls beat the third-seeded Cavs. In the previous um, season, the, uh, the Bulls were actually the higher-seeded team. So. Then we go to 91-92 uh, to 92 jump, and uh, the Cavs actually uh, – Came down to earth in 1990 at 42-40. and 40. So they would finish 42-40 and 40 twice during that st- that span and 57-25 twice during that span. So that's kind of fun. Um, they lost uh, Sanders in for agency. You lose Sanders, then you just uh, – you know, you fall down to average. Uh, <laughs> it, they tr- the, the big mistake is they traded away Ron Harper for Danny Ferry, who was the number two overall pick. Uh, at that point, was playing in Italy instead of uh, playing with the Clippers because you know, he didn't want to play with the Clippers. I can't blame him, him, honestly. Yeah. yeah, Between the two, Italy or the Los Angeles yeah. Clippers, I, I'm with Danny here. So Right. So they get Danny Ferry. You know, he was pretty hyped out of Duke. I mean, you know, like, you know, there was not the realization that he was going to be the, the bust that he ended up um, being. Um, Doherty and Nance also missed big chunks of the season. So that's, you know, why they, uh, kind of fell off. They again, lost in five in the first round this time of the 76ers. So 1991, that's when they go 33 and 49 injuries. Again, this time it is price and hot rod missing much of the season. And Danny Ferry joins the Cavs, averages 8.6 points per game on 49% true shooting 3.4 rebounds, a 10.9 PER, negative four box score plus Eek. minus in season. Eek. Yeah, so yeah, not so uh, great. So, um, but 92 things finally come together. They're mostly healthy. They get uh, some decent contributions. It, it, besides the core guys that we've talked about, they also had free agent John Battle and rookie Terrell Brandon. Um, Probably most importantly, they realized that Danny Ferry sucked and they only played him 14 minutes per game, even less than they played Steve Kerr, who was in his third and final season with the team there. Uh, they even brought back Mike Sanders late in the season to help in the uh, playoffs. Um, interestingly, the 92 Cavs were a, they were an excellent def- offensive team. They were second in the league uh, in offensive rating, and then kind of in the middle of the pack, they were 11th in defensive rating, so kind of the opposite of what led to their success the first time around. Um they're fifth in SRS, again tied for the second rec- best record in the league behind the 67-win uh, 92 Bulls. And they finally got past the first round. They beat the Nets in four games. They ended Larry Bird's NBA career winning against the Celtics in seven games before falling to the Bulls in six games in the Eastern <laughs> Conference Finals. So, yeah, so close. And then, yeah, from there, the Cavs kept it together one more season, made it to the second round, but then, again, lost to the Bulls. Uh, this time they were swept in the second round, Jordan hitting the shot part two of the less famous version of the uh, the shot. Um, and then from there, yeah, they end up going to Mark Fratello instead of Lenny Wilkins. And then Wilkins decided to go to Fratello's former team, the Hawks, so they kind of a fun trade there. Uh, and Doherty retired earlier, and they kind of gradually moved on from Price, Hot Rod, Elo, and Antio. Some of those guys got old and retired. Some of them, you know, moved on to other situations. So, so yeah, the uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. So just yeah, kind of a wild. Uh, to for it to happen twice in such a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you mentioned Danny Ferry there, and that's that's remarkable that they just pretty much gave up like halfway through the you know, the year where they're like, all right, look, this guy stinks. Like we're not like because that's I mean I you know especially in today's NBA it, it seems like that would be impossible. Like they no, we got this guy with their second overall pick. Like we traded the guys, you know, we, we traded people for like we have to play and we have to see what we have. Pretty remarkable that that he comes to a team that's pretty damn good, as you're saying, kind of shockingly good. 
and they realize very quickly, hey, look, we don't really need this guy, <laughs> like, and we're better off maybe if we play him less. And I, I, I admire that from the Cavaliers, a team that wasn't, you know, didn't always make the best uh, decisions there, but uh, then they would, uh, of course, sign him like a year later to that ten-year deal or whatever. So right. I guess they, you know, a short amount of time where they realize, hey, wait a minute, like maybe this guy's not good. And then they said, actually, you know what? Here's a bunch of money and a lot of con- a lot of years of contracts, and now I yeah. think he's like the all-time leader in games played for the Cavaliers or something like that. Is he or, or, or Big Z probably? I, 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 no, I imagine I Zuzuna's past him at some point. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Fair put it that long for the. Um, also, let's look that one up. We'll. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll I think we'll he, that I don't there. know. I don't know exactly, but I think he. It, it was shockingly really? Like I, I remember cause not that long ago. Don't ask me why. Do not ask me why I watched the uh, the Spurs uh, Detroit Pistons NBA Finals and Danny Ferry is on that Spurs team, which I could not believe he was still playing in like 2003. And I think he had only been on that Spurs team for a year or two prior. And I think he was in Cav uh, Cleveland. All those years, uh, as oh well. yeah, I, could, I, mean, I could be wrong. Yeah, I guess ninety-one to two thousand, he played with God. the uh, the Cavs. I mean, he got. <laughs> I mean, he got. Yeah, I mean, he got better. I mean, he was sort of like okayish role player by the uh, by the end there. But yeah, that is um, that is that's pretty uh, that's pretty wild there. So, Rich, our friends at Manscaped do not want you to make a mistake like the Cleveland Cavaliers made with Danny Ferry. No. No, they do not. No, they, uh, uh, of course, uh, as we mentioned last week in our last show, that support for Overback is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. The best in men's below the waist uh, grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. And yes, no mistakes, no nicks, no cuts, nothing like that. Nothing like what the, the Cavs had with Danny Ferry with Manscaped. Not at all. Absolutely not. The Manscaped engineering team, they spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created, and they just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Yeah, third-generation trimmer features cutting-edge ceramic blade uh, to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology pioneered by Manscaped. And when I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can have a longer shave, and the waterproof technology allows you to groom in the shower if you want as well. Yeah, and one of the coolest features is the LED light. It illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. They also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you can shower with the, so you can be in your shower with the lights off and still trim your balls. I mean that that I mean come on, <laughs> that's next level. That is what living in 2020 is all about. But anyway, uh, let's not forget about the charging stand as well. You can show your mower off loud and proud uh, because this intelligently designed stand is convenient charging dock uh, powered by USB. Also, you can just plug it into your laptop. You can plug it into your computer. You can go to work and plug it in. You can plug it in the car. The USB technology will charge it and let it happen uh, whenever you need. And if you are listening to us speak right now, we want you to experience Manscaped firsthand for yourself. You can trim that junk of yours. You get 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at Manscaped.com. Jason, once again, that's 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at Manscaped.com. Once again, 20% off with free shipping, Manscaped.com, and use the promo code FANSIDED20. Your balls We'll thank you, and we will thank you as well. Absolutely. By the way, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, Danny Ferry, uh, third all time in games uh, for the Cleveland Cavaliers, seven hundred and twenty three. LeBron James, number one with eight hundred and forty nine. Yeah, I guess he played some games with them too. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And Zildjurnis is number two, then, right? Zildjurnis is number two, seven hundred and seventy one. Ferry is ninth in minutes all time, uh, fifteen thousand forty five. So wow. 
That's all. That's all in minutes. Well, and he had a, a very famous bald head as well. And you can I don't know if you're going to be able to get to that bald with the uh, with the manscaped, but uh, you could try. You could trim it a little bit. I, I, I have I, I can say firsthand I've used the manscape on, on areas other than my balls. And, and, and it is it is possible to uh, to trim other parts of your body. But again, you're not going to get the you're not going to get the, the glassy bald head that, uh, of a Danny Ferry, but uh, he can maybe get a little bit of close. Anyway, all right, let's talk about the Dallas Mavericks here. Speaking of glossy yes. bald heads, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who. Um, trying to think of who's the, who's a famous bald uh, Dallas Mavericks. Dallas Maverick. Maverick. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, they all have hair, just, right? Yeah. <laughs> who's bald yeah. in place for the Mavericks? I yeah. I can't think of any, like, like Jason Terry, you know, he had a little bit of hair. Like, yeah, I wouldn't call him, like, you know, dramatically bald. I guess, I guess Jason Terry would be our, our bald Dallas Maverick. Um, Derek Harper. Derek Harper's a bald Dallas Maverick. Is he fully bald? I I, I wasn't. Uh, I forget if he had. Yeah, Derek, okay. Derek Harper was yeah, later on. I think. Yeah. There we go. All right, Derek yeah. Harper. Speaking of Derek Harper, let's <laughs> say Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd yeah. bald. Of course. Anyway, let's talk there about the go. Dallas Mavericks here. Uh, the season we're going to focus on here, 1986 to 1987, the 1986 Dallas Mavericks, 44 and 38 with a .07 SRS. Then in 1987, things turn around. They go 55 and 27, 5.54 SRS. Uh, a little bit of background about the Mavericks, though, of course. Uh, they have some initial struggles as an expansion franchise beginning in uh, 1980. Uh, by 1984, though, the team under uh, Coach Dick Mata uh, had become respectable. They have their first winning season that year. They go 43 and 39 and make a, a, a somewhat miracle run, I would say, to the Western Conference semifinals. They get a big upset against the Seattle Supersonics. Then they go face the Los Angeles Lakers and they win a game, but then get slaughtered pretty uh, quickly and pretty easily uh, by the Lakers. But uh, by 1985, the team improves by one game to 44 wins. Uh, but unfortunately, they exit in the first round uh, of the playoffs again. 1986, once again, only 44 wins, another run to the Western Conference semifinals. And then that brings us to the 1987 season where we're going to talk a little bit about how they all came together, how it all worked. So, you know, the team, first off, despite winning 44 games and making the playoffs in that year prior, they get the seventh overall pick in the NBA draft. And you're thinking, well, that's kind of strange. How would they do that? Well, they did that because of, drumroll please, the Cleveland Cavaliers because uh, Dallas selects uh, Roy Tarpley uh, with the seventh pick in that draft. And the pick comes in an October 30th, 1980 draft. Many years in the past. October 30th, 1980, uh, the pick is traded by Cleveland with Bill Robazin, I believe. It's Bill Robazin uh, and a 1983 first-round pick. Who did they pick with that 1983 first-round pick? The Dallas Mavericks? They picked Derek Harper. So they got Derek Harper, uh, somebody named Bill Robenzine, who we don't, ma- don't really matter, and Roy Tarpley, who came in with a lot of fanfare into the league. Obviously, things did not work out uh, exactly how uh, Roy or anybody would have really wanted to due to a, a multitude of issues with Tarpley. But that's a good trade because... All that Dallas had to give the Cleveland Cavaliers, the the very astute nineteen early nineteen eighties Cleveland Cavaliers, they had to give them Richard Washington and Jerome Whitehead. So quick little check in on Richard Washington and Jerome Whitehead in their Cleveland Cavaliers career. Uh, Richard Washington he played only a season and a half with Cleveland, and he averaged under ten points per game. And Jerome Whitehead was waived seventeen days after being traded for. So that just he played three games as a Cavalier, and then they said, "Up, ah, you're not good, so we're going to waive you." Uh, and that's what they gave up, Derek Harper. Uh, the pick that became Derek Harper, the pick that became Roy Tarpley, and Bill Robazine for in October 30th of 1980. So that, that if you need one more example of why um, the Cleveland Cavaliers, whether they were not allowed to trade picks anymore and they had to make a rule to keep their stupid owner from doing stupid things, uh, that is why. But, but sometimes they don't fuck up because Mark Price 
also drafted that year by the Dallas Mavericks, the year that we're talking about here with Roy Tarpley. He was drafted in the second round, but he sent immediately to the Cavaliers for a 1989 second round pick. So see, sometimes yeah. the Cavaliers don't fuck up. Sometimes they make some pretty good picks, but uh, don't worry because we got we're not done with them just yet. We got one more for them uh, here in this thing. But uh, so again, anyway, at the beginning of the 1987 season, we're looking at kind of the big moves that that that, that you know Dallas is going to make to improve and and kind of change their roster, which you know for, had been pretty good and pretty solid for the last few years. Well, they make a, a, a relatively big trade in terms of like you would think that they would get worse from this, but it actually you know ended up being the opposite. Uh, they trade Dale Ellis to Seattle for Al Wood. Uh, and they sent Jay Vincent to the Bullets for a future draft pick. So those are, you know, two players that that played decent roles for them, especially Dale Ellis, who, who you know, would turn into a, a much better player in Seattle. But, like, was a pretty good piece of this Dallas Mavericks team right here. But what this ends up doing, though, is it gives more playing time to both Detlef Schremp and Derek Harper. Uh, plus, their defense improves with, with this as well. They go from 20th in the league to 14th in the league, which definitely helps uh, them a lot. And as we're talking about Detlef Schremp, I want to um, want to. Jason, if you want to play a little bit of trivia here, I want you to guess how the Mavericks got the rights to Detlef Schremp. What team? <laughs> oh, there's all these teams, as we said, 20, all, all, these, right. all these different teams. What team do you think traded the draft rights to uh, Detlef Schremp uh, to the Dallas well, Mavericks? So. I'm going to guess it was a team called the Charlotte Bobcast. I mean, the Bobcats, they don't exist. They weren't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they yeah. Didn't, well, they didn't exist ever, to be honest. But. Yeah, they never existed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. That, never, that never happened. All right, Richard, you have to tell me. I don't have any more guesses. I'm sorry. <sighs> Believe it or not, it is. The Cleveland Cavaliers, February seventh, nineteen eighty one. The Cleveland Cavaliers traded the future uh, draft rights here, uh, nineteen eighty five first round pick with Chad Kinch to the Ooh. Dallas Mavericks for Jeff Huston <laughs> and a nineteen eighty three third round pick. So uh, another fantastic wow. move by the Cleveland Cavaliers, who say draft picks. Ah, it's amazing. You know, I'll be honest. It's amazing the Cavaliers ever were good again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they got real good as we talked about. We just alluded to them getting really good with a really deep team, despite the fact that for a decade plus their owner just traded every draft pick for right. bad players. It's unbelievable that they got good again. So congratulations to, uh, as you said, the, the the guys did get in charge there, Lenny Wilkins, uh, Wayne Embry, and those guys. But anyway, as far as why this team, you know, got good and, 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 you know, ended up going from a 44 win to a 55 win. Uh, Mark Aguirre, he raised his scoring to uh, 25.7 points per game up from 22 the prior year. So I'm sure that helped a little bit. Uh, Rolando Blackman, he had pretty similar numbers year to year. So I guess the consistency helps. Those guys have been playing together for a few years now. Uh, Derek Harper jumps from 12.2 points per game to 16 points per game, as we said. Uh, so that definitely helps. Detlef Schrempf kind of keeps his same numbers year to year, even though playing a little bit more. Sam Perkins is, is, is there. He keeps his numbers uh, kind of year to year. But otherwise, they just, I don't know, they just win more games. They, they play better defense and they're... This year, the first time they're like the team feels like a real contender, you know, the Dallas Mavericks. And, and, you know, they had a, a tumultuous, you know, beginning to their franchise, but, uh, things are going well. They're, they've got a little bit of a, you know, thing going here and, and, and they win, you know, 55 games. They go into the playoffs. Unfortunately, uh, disappointment for Dallas as they get to the playoffs. They destroy the Seattle Supersonics by 22 points in game one. Everyone's thinking, oh man, this is the year Dallas is going to make this deep run. And unfortunately, the bottom drops out. They lose games two and three in close fashion and then finally lose game four. Uh, to end the series, and after that, uh, uh, after that game, uh, Dick Mata he uh, he resigns as the head coach, and, and they kind of move into a new era uh, for the Mavericks. And they would still be pretty decent throughout the next few years in the '80s, and then the uh, well, then the '90s happened, and it's best right. if we just don't mention the '90s. So. No. <laughs> and then Dirk came to town, yay! <laughs> yeah, uh, that was better. Yeah, yeah. '88, they actually made the Western Conference Finals. That was kind of the peak of mm-hmm. you know they, they weren't as good as a regular season, but they were better in the playoffs. And then kind of from there, they could they. Uh, started to fall off uh, unfortunately but yes um so now we want to talk about the detroit pistons 
the uh, the nineteen seventies Detroit Pistons, as a matter of fact. We'll focus more on the seventy three versus seventy four team. But first, I want to bring up the seventy and seventy one teams. So the nineteen seventy team finished thirty one and fifty one, negative two point nine SRS. Um, the uh, seventy one Pistons had a significant improvement. Um, 45 wins, uh, a negative 0.033 SRS, so almost a even SRS. Uh, biggest roster change was adding Bob Lanier after having traded Walt Bellamy during the 1950 season, which you think, yeah, it's, that's a big trade and that's a big deal. But for some reason, Bob Lanier only played 24.6 minutes per game in his rookie season. He, he played, um, you know, 82 games and all the remaining players were basically the same from 70 to 71. So, um, it, it, it's again. This is another instance where it was a very similar phenomenon in a small number of years. But outside of Bing and Lanier, the rosters were almost completely different. And the '71 Pistons way outperformed their expected win loss. Um, you know, they had a negative SRS, so you know they should have been 39 and, and 43 when win 45 games. So that, that's a pretty big uh, improvement. So it's a little bit of a um, you know maybe a little bit of a mirage there. Um, but what I also found very fascinating is. 1971 was the Pistons' first 500-plus season they had had as a franchise since 1956 when they made the finals <laughs> in Fort Wayne. So 15, 16 years um, b- between 500-plus you know, seasons for the uh, Pistons. And, you know, the first decade and a half in Detroit, they you know were under 500. So that, that's a pretty remarkable run of um, futility there. So. It is, especially in a, in a kind of a tumultuous NBA era as well. Like, you know, now it's it's like you can go through those and, you know, there's investment in arenas and there's, you know, teams that have years and years in history. But like, yeah, it, it's amazing. The team moves there and it's kind of bad forever. And yeah, obviously Detroit is is, is in a, you know, a relatively healthy state, at least, you know, during some of those years uh, as far as the city. But yeah, that's a, that's a bad time to be like a terrible, terrible team. And yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that they didn't at least, you know, seek out relocation or, or seek out, you know, hey, is this team even, you know, something we want in, in our town but sure. uh yeah crazy yeah 1971 and 1956 just seems like such a long amount of time so going on to the 73 versus 74 team the 73 team won 40 games just below 500 0.54 srs so positive srs that'll become important in a moment the 74 team 52 and 30 with a four 4.02 SRS, so really, really good SRS, uh, especially for the league at the time. We'll talk about that, too. But 1973 was the franchise's first positive SRS season since 1956. So, again, <laughs> 17, 18 years in the past for for, for, for those who – for those who are, are new to the term, I'm sure most of you know basketball references. SRS is basically in your you know your point differential and takes into account either your difficulty in scheduling. So, um, yeah, so that, that's pretty amazing. That year, Earl Lloyd was the coach for the first uh, seven games, and then they went on to Ray Scott, who had played for the Pistons, a few other teams, played briefly in the ABA, um, transitioned to coaching. 38 and 37 that, that season. So under Ray Scott, they were one game over 500. Then 1974 is the Pistons' first 600-plus season in the NBA. All, all incarnations in the uh, NBA, uh, their first uh, 600 a season. If you look at, at the other, if you, the eight original NBA franchises, those that sort of, you know, su- 
survived the initial, uh, you know, the merger and the, you know, the teams that all folded kind of after that. The Lakers, their first 600 season, 1950. The Royals Kings franchise, 1950. Nationals 76ers franchise, 1950. The Warriors, 1951. The Celtics and Knicks, 1953. The Hawks, 1959. So all of those teams get it out of the way in the 50s. Not until 1974 that the Pistons actually get there. So I feel like I'm saying the same thing in a lot of different ways, but the Pistons were really bad for. Yeah, time. I guess I, I never really, I, I guess I never really noticed that they were that bad for that long, and especially like being that bad in in in, in a league with so few teams. And you know, it's like right. you, you don't get lucky like one year, you don't just like right. draft one guy and he helps your team win games. Like you just don't well, know nothing. But I mean, they had I talent, mean, you know. Uh, yeah, but that's kind of the other side of the Celtics being dominant in the uh, league for so long is that the uh, you know the, the Pistons and the Knicks were really not very good because they were always playing the Celtics. Right, the right, Celtics. right, right. So, right. You know, that, that's, that's part of it right there. But yeah, that, that is, it is interesting. So yeah, the 1974 team, they, they, they pretty much replaced, you know, the only guy they really replaced was George Trapp replacing Fred Foster. Everyone else on was part of the, had been, you know, in the rotation from the prior Dave Bing and Bob Lanier, who already talked about their two big stars, Don Adams, Curtis Rowe, Chris Ford, John Mengolt, Stu Lance, Willie Norwood, Jim Davis, all the guys uh, came for Jim Davis. I believe not the Garfield creator, uh, Jim Davis. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I, I believe you're correct. Yeah. I cannot confirm yeah. that right now, but I, I believe you're correct. So. All right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll trust our gut on that. One. So, uh, yeah. And their improvement was mostly on uh, defense. They were the third in the league out of 17 teams in defensive rating. Previously, they had been 10th and were just about at middle of the league in um, offense. So they, Got a lot, I guess they tried harder on defense or maybe you know, some new schemes or whatever. But, uh, yeah, and they were second in the league in SROs, although they were well behind number one Milwaukee at 7.61. So Ray Scott won Coach of the Year, and um, they uh, they made the playoffs back. They Because they won their division, they got a bye. So they uh, made it into the uh, conference semifinals, the Western Conference semifinals. Um, or, excuse me, I guess this is the Western Conference uh, finals. Yes. No, I'm sorry. It's semifinals. Western Conference semifinals. The Pistons playing the Bulls. Uh, it goes to seven games, uh, and uh, the Bulls' Chet Walker hit a head fake 10-footer with three seconds left, uh, putting the Bulls ahead 96-94. And then Dave Bing has it. He pa- passes in bounds, but then Dennis Autry tipped it in order to uh, seal the game and prevent the uh, Pistons from winning. So the, the Bulls uh, ended up winning the game there. This is from a book called... Uh, the Detroit Pistons, more than four decades of Motor City memories from uh, Steve Addy and Jeffrey R. Jeffrey F. Carson. Excuse me. Uh, one thing that was uh, noteworthy is that um, there is uh, there's a quote from um, Ray Scott here after the Pistons had won Game Six um, at home. Um, Ray Scott's quote was, "This series was supposed to be a piece of cake for them, and now they're choking on." Wow, it, that's a quote from a, your head coach, man. Yeah, man, oh yeah. Man. So, not we, not we. They, they're, they're, <laughs> they're choking. choking. I'm doing a great job. These guys suck, though. That's a that is a quote, man. That is that's that's something I love about old NBA coaches is. And if they thought you sucked, they told the world that you sucked. <laughs> you yes. know, they didn't, they didn't hide anything. No, no platitudes. Not you know. We have to try harder. Just you guys stink. You're garbage. <laughs> so uh, yes, um, and the 1975 team also basically the same roster. Um, they finished 40 and 42. 
then the next season, 76, Ray Scott was fired after a 17 well, and 20. I can't imagine why. <laughs> I, I, I never coached in the NBA again. I mean, I don't know. He was like only like 39 at the time. It was kind of so like you're oh, lighting well, your team on fire is, yes. is not necessarily the best idea. So. Right, right. Uh, ended up working in the insurance industry and at various community service work. For, oh, exciting. Uh, there you insurance. Go. So, yeah, insurance. Hey, you exciting know. world of insurance. Yeah, that's exciting right. world of insurance. Yeah. What hey. if he talks shit yeah. about uh, all of his, uh, his agents as well? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know. Policyholders. Like, that guy's garbage. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that guy's basement is going to collapse any minute now. Right. Oh, God. All right. So let's move on to the uh, Milwaukee Bucks here. The focus we're going to do is the 2000 bucks to the 2001 uh, Milwaukee Bucks. The 2000 bucks, 42 and 40 with a negative 0.06 SRS. 2001, 52 and 30, uh, 3.14 SRS there. So a little bit of uh, background about the Bucks. Uh, obviously a perennial playoff team in the 70s and the 80s, one of the, you know, charter franchise, one of the better franchises in the NBA, I would say at this time. Obviously the problem, they can't get over the hump. They have to face very good teams. Um, they're just never able to kind of make that leap into the finals, never quite able to get there. Uh, and then they fall into disarray in the 90s. They become one of the NBA's worst franchises uh, with seemingly no hope, no real direction, no, nothing real, real going on after years, after you know the 70s, having Kareem in there. Obviously, a little bit of hiccups once Kareem leaves. But then, yeah, the 80s, uh, they're, they're solid as hell. But, uh, yeah, 90s, not very good. Uh, in 1998, they do change those fortunes a little bit. The team hires former Sonics coach George Carl. Uh, and in 1999, followed up with the hire of former Knicks executive. Uh, Ernie Grunfeld. So they got a, 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 both guys that were successful in the 90s with Grunfeld uh, and Carl. And, and quickly the team starts acquiring talent um, to, to pair with, you know, they had some decent players. They have Ray Allen and Glenn Robinson at this time. Well, now they start slowly but surely kind of assembling guys around uh, both Ray Allen and Glenn Robinson. Sam Cassell, Tim Thomas, Irvin Johnson, uh, most notable acquisitions uh, the year prior. Uh, the big three of, of Ray Allen, Glenn Robinson, and, and Sam Cassell, which is a, a very pathetic big three in the grand oh. scheme of, of yeah. big threes. But hey, it was a big yeah. three at this time, so we're going to sure. go with it. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not quite LeBron, you know, like James good. Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving. Or, solid, solid three, yeah. yeah. Yeah, an okay three, uh, good yeah. solid three players that played for Not this team three. at the same right. time. Yeah. So um, they show promise in the 2000 season. Team makes the playoffs for the first time uh, in a full season. They made it in the lockout shortened season, but we're not going to count that. It's lockout shortened season. But uh, uh, this is the first time they've made the playoffs in a full season since 1991. Just to tell you how bad and how long it had been, especially in the Eastern Conference uh, during this time as well. Uh, team has a solid offense this year, second in the league in offensive rating, and the Bucks uh, okay three that play at the same time, big three, whatever, uh, almost sure. all score 20 points per game this year as well. Ray Allen, 22.1, Glenn Robinson, 20.9, and Sam Cassell, uh, 18.6. So then the offseason getting us into the 2001 season, what they do to kind of uh, change things around and, and what they do to maybe improve here without any real big major changes. Uh, they acquire Lindsey Hunter from Detroit. That helps uh, a decent amount. It gives a nice backup point guard uh, for Sam Cassell. They also sign Jerome Kersey, who is still somehow around at this point. I yeah. could not believe Jerome Kersey was a member of the 2001 Bucks, but but he was. I uh, wasn't a very important member of the 2001 Bucks, but hell, he was there and he counts anyway. So we're going to count it here. But uh, otherwise, pretty much run it back. Every other key piece was brought back the prior year and things do not go well at the start of the 2001 season. They, they, they lose nine of their first 12 games. Uh, it feels like, oh man, what the hell is going on with this team? George Carl has lost him again and, and this team, they just not enough talent. Things aren't going to work, but things do turn around quickly. The team would win 23 of their next 29 games, win eight straight games in January and end the year with 52 wins, the most that franchise has had since 19. 1986, and uh, you know I had mentioned before that uh, all three of those guys had scored almost 20 points, or, or, or you know two of them scored 20. Sam Cassell just on the outside looking in. 
look at the consistency here just to show you why like kind of a big shrug of like I don't know how they got that much better <laughs> this next year they almost did it all again and the consistency year to year Ray Allen 22 points per game in 2001 that's a 0.1 point per game difference than he had the prior year he had 22.1 the prior year Glad Robinson 22 points a game. That's a 1.1 point per uh, point per game difference as he had uh, 20.9 the prior year. And Sam Cassell, 18.2 points per game. He had 18.6 in 2000. So those guys stayed very, very consistent. But uh, other notable players in this 2001 year, uh, Tim Thomas, 12.6 points per game. Lindsey Hunter, as we said, he's maybe the key there uh, with 10.1 points per game and, and, and playing really good, solid backup uh, uh, point guard role for the team. And, you know, as far as like what made this team great and, and, and how they, you know, improved as much as they did at 10 different 10 wins and a, and a pretty decent run uh, in the playoffs is, you know, again, their defense once again near the top of the league, just kind of letting you know what, you know, a team with Ray Allen and Glenn Robinson and Sam Cassell was like the top offense in the NBA at this time. It was not a year, a, a time of, of real offensive explosions, but uh, their top, uh, you know, their, their, their number one overall, first overall in offensive rating. Uh, their defense, though, still so so 20 out of 29. So it wasn't, it was a good offense, just as they were the prior year. A so-so defense, just as they were the prior year. They just won more games, man. I don't know. (laughs) It's a big old shrug. I'm not sure. They just won more games. They just wanted it more, I guess, this year than they did the prior year. So Lindsey Hunter. We're going to go with Lindsey Hunter as being the key here uh, for the 2001 Bucks. But the Bucks would fight hard in the playoffs. They'd win a first-round matchup against the Orlando Magic. This is the first time the Bucks make it out of the NBA's uh, first round since 1989, just to let you know how terrible the 90s were for the Bucks. Uh, They battle to a big Game 7 series with the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, they defeat the Charlotte Hornets and move on to the Philadelphia 76ers in the Eastern Conference Finals and then go seven games with the Philadelphia 76ers, a game away from making the NBA Finals this year. But, of course, they would lose to Allen Iverson and the 76ers. But we can't move on without talking about conspiracy theories. Ready for this? Ray Allen, after a Game 5 loss in this series, says, quote, it behooves everybody for the league to make more money, and the league knows that Philadelphia is going to make more money with L.A. than we would with L.A. So that's Ray Allen having that comment. Oh. Uh, George Carl has many comments as well. Both of them are fined severely uh, at the end of this uh, series as, as, as you know, they both kind of allude to uh, this, this game being rigged and, and the NBA wanting the Philadelphia 76ers uh, in the NBA Finals as opposed to the Milwaukee Bucks. So uh, what do you think about that, Jason? Do you think they... In, in 2001, does the league want to market? I mean, I, I don't know that they really wanted to market Allen Iverson all that much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they kind of did a kicking and screaming, but uh, I don't know. Do you, do you believe in this conspiracy theory uh, well, that the Bucks allude to here? Uh, hard for me to imagine that, that George Carl would ever have sour grapes. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Any, right. like, unfounded um, comment against anybody. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm not really generally a, you know, conspiracy theorist, although, you know, I mean... I will have to say that, you know, Irvin Johnson, you know, only being held to, uh, you know, less than five points a game in a series. I mean, that's just that, 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 that's <laughs> that, that's pretty much uh, unbelievable right there. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think definitely I'm sorry, you no, know, under seven points per game in the uh, in the series. He actually, he actually exceeded his. Um, See, OK, well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, then yeah, that right there, that's that just tells me that. um yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, interestingly enough, the Bucks had on their uh, they had some really interesting guys on their uh, deer bench. They had Bray for Alston, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who ended up being you know kind of a star later. They had Joel Prisbilla, you know, who was a you know a pretty good guy, and then they had Michael Red as a rookie who only played um, I believe six games during the uh, season, averaging five point eight um, points per game. So they didn't kind of realize what they had in him for like another year. So um, I find that fascinating. But yes, the the whole. Um, you know, uh, yes, I do find it um, unlikely that the uh, NBA would, uh, you know, 
would would rig something just kind of based on like all of the uh, you know hysteria that would follow if uh, if such a conspiracy were ever like revealed and caught and were sure you know, uh, yeah, yeah yeah it's it's, it's pretty difficult to, yeah, there's there's some other stuff we could go into it if we really wanted to where it's like this guy got ejected for here or this amount of you know free throws versus this or whatever I, I don't know yeah it, it's hard to say but they they get to seven games though uh, they still get very very close but uh, yeah this and, and yeah. this unfortunately is going to be kind of the last hurrah. Uh, for this Bucks team as, as they're going to kind of fall apart in a bit. And we're actually going to, you know, touch on, on, on a few of the parts uh, of this team that uh, are going to be moving on to another one of our teams that we're going to talk about here in a bit. But uh, nice. before that, let's talk some Grizz. The Grizz, yes. The 2003 to 2004 Grizzlies. So, yes, the 2003 team won 28 games, had a negative 2.6 SRS. The 20, 2004 team won 50 games and had a 2.95 SRS. So, you know, after... Seven really lousy seasons in Vancouver. The Grizzlies move to Memphis before the 2002 season. Huey Brown takes over as coach in the 2003 season after they had an 0-8 start under Sidney Lowe. Huey hadn't coached for like 15-plus years or so, I think, since you know coaching the Knicks in the uh, mid-'80s. So it had been a long time. You know, he'd, been, he'd been doing commentary, obviously. Um, kind of an out-of-the-ballpark uh, you know, thing. He was you know almost 70 at the time. Um, and then nice, young 70, uh, Huey Brown. Um, they, uh, then they finished the season 28 and 46 to set the franchise record for wins, which was previously 23. So they improvement there and, you know, started rebuilding, you know, they had the number three overall pick Pau Gasol. They had Jason Williams, who of course was, you know, dynamic guard, um, Pretty solid big man, Lorenzen Wright. Nothing great, but, you know, solid guy to, hey, you know. Hey, <laughs> Don't dare me, you know? Swirch. Lorenzen Wright, how dare you? I, my apologies. Uh, and then, you know, it's some decent young talent. Shane Battier, Mike Miller, who they'd gotten from Drew Gooden during the season, and Stromile Swift, who kind of looks like a potential, you know, um, guy, you know, great forward of the future, never really mm-hmm. panned out. But, but you know, looked like a good young talent at the time. He seemed like, not to interrupt, but, like, Stromile, okay. if, you, if you weren't around for this era, like, Guys like Stromile Swift was like, you know how today, like, it's all about, like, the unicorns and the next level, you know, the, like, the whatever Stromile Swift, whatever you want to remember Stromile Swift as, that's what everybody in the NBA wanted is just like a, a six foot 10 guy that can jump out of the gym and is super athletic. Like, everybody was kind of ready for those guys to take over the league and, and, and really kind of one by one with Stromile being one of them is, it's just, it never kind of worked for a lot of the guys and, and sort of like the Kenyon Martin mold. Cause I think Kenyon Martin had obviously come and, and, and New Jersey had gotten really good right off the bat. So everyone's like, oh, man, we need like one of those guys, like somebody like that. And, and yeah, right. there was a long line of like, you know, really high draft picks and, and guys that were just like tall and athletic. But maybe they didn't have any other skills, but it didn't matter. We'll figure it out later. Uh, and, and very few of them actually panned out and became, you know, re- real, real players. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was, yeah, it was even more so maybe looking for the next Garnett, you know, um, and, and, and yeah, and obviously Garnett was unique and special. And, you know, I, and none of those guys, you know, played much defense or could shoot, which, you know, was it was important then and it was becoming more important, you know, as the league was evolving in, in the middle of the decade. So that was definitely part of it too. But yeah, obviously to have a guy that size with that amount of skill is uh, incredibly rare. So uh, yeah, yeah, Swift was an okay player, but yeah, nothing, yeah. Yeah. nothing special, obviously. So um, yeah. So 2004, the Grizzlies add uh, James Posey's a free agent and they end up um, acquiring Bonzi Wells in early December um, who they got for Wesley person and a first round pick. Uh, but otherwise, you know, most of the top guys were uh, returnees. We talked about talked about them already. 
Um, and then, yeah, they, they started the season pretty well, nine and eight, but they actually slumped after they acquired Wells. They lost seven straights. However, in January, they turned things around. They went eight in a row. And then in March, they would win 13 out of 15 games to um, make it to 50 wins. Uh, they were eighth in the league in SRS. Pretty much solid, but unspectacular on both sides of the ball. They were seventh in offensive rating, 11th in defensive rating. Uh, Hebe Brown, he won coach of the year. And then the Grizzlies lost to the defending champion Spurs 4-0 in the playoffs. But, you know, overall, the vibes were good. Um, the team did make the playoffs the next two seasons. They were swept um, each time. Um, Hubie ended up resigning from the team early the next season because of health issues. Eventually, Mike Fratello took over as coach. Many of the key pieces, um, Wells, Posey, and Williams, were part of the major five-team trade in the uh, summer of 2005 that, you know, um, you know, um, Posey ended up and Williams ended up going to the Heat. Bonzi Wells ended up going to the Kings. You know, the Celtics got guys. Everybody got guys in that trade. If it feels like a, there, there were five, there are five teams, and then like there was like a sixth trade as or they, a sixth <laughs> team that was involved in a, was essentially a separate trade, but almost the exact same trade there. So, a lot of guys in that trade. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Gasol stayed with their stayed with them for a couple more seasons. It was traded in 2008 in the midseason after he'd missed some time with injuries, and there was some complaints that he was uh, soft. And then ended up, of course, going to the Lakers and securing his uh, NBA legacy. And then, of course, his brother Mark would um, you know come back to the Grizzlies that trade and eventually be part of the next uh, grit and grind era team around Tony Allen, Zach Randolph, and Mike Conley, who you know the next sort of successful. Uh, team in that area, but yeah, but this was definitely the first uh, team with any success uh, for, uh, for the Grizzlies. I love that. I, I was a big fan of this team at this time, especially with, yeah. you know, when, when you, when you were watching that, I mean, this team was so bad for a while there in Vancouver, oh, yeah. and like, you know, Awful. playing in front of like 10 people in Vancouver, it's just a, a dead franchise within like, you know, a, a barely a decade of being a, you know, a franchise. It was just like, Oh my God, what is going to happen here? And yeah, all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, you know, it, it all kind of comes together and it was a lot of fun to watch this team. And, and, and yeah, it ended up leading to, to the equally fun grit and grind era. Uh, Grizzlies and, and 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 now the Grizzlies are you know they're an okay franchise obviously they're not as you know they're they're not perennial contenders or anything right now but they're at least seemingly on the right track but yeah it yeah. is it, it's hard to it, it's hard to if you weren't watching at the time it's hard to kind of wrap your head around just how bad and how like oh my god what is the NBA going to do with this franchise that you know they were for a few of those years in Vancouver where you know it's just Sharif Abdul Rahim and Mike Bibby playing in front of you know fourteen people in Vancouver is is you know just a darkened arena and no one's there it's just a, a terrible terrible time but. Uh, we had some fun with the with the Grizzlies, so good for sure. That. Did you know that there is another Bonzi in NBA history? No, do tell what Bonzi Colson. He okay. um, played for the Bucks in the 2019 uh, season. He played uh, eight games total. Um, he uh, was born in Washington D.C. and he went to high school in Rhode Island. Oh, is there any way that so there's there's no way he was named after Bonzi Wells, right? Like that's got to be. Uh, well, he's born in '96, so probably not. You know, yeah, Bonzi unless they were Wells, a big yeah. fan of like Bonzi Wells in college or something, maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Bonzi plays at, played at Ball State, so Ball State, maybe so. not. Yeah. So I don't think they were. I don't think his parents were huge fans of of Ball State. So it's like, yeah, you know what? We're naming our kid after this good player from Ball State. I don't know. Maybe the dad was watching a random, you know, ESPN well, late night game and and said, "Ah, Bonzi, that's a good name." So well, apparently Bonzi's a junior, so um, Ooh, I guess okay. yeah. So, so that does seem unlikely. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair. Uh, yeah. Fair. Yeah. Yes. That and we can confirm that his father is not named after Bonzi Wells. We we know that. For sure. <laughs> well, for sure. unless there's unless there's time travel involved. Um, 
With Fonzie Wells, anything is possible. For sure. It's true. That's a good point. All right, so let's talk about uh, the Sonics slash Thunder here, specifically let's the Sonics. Uh, yeah. 2004 to 2005. Uh, 2004 Sonics, 37 and 45, negative 2.88 SRS. The 2005 Sonics, 52 wins, 30 losses, 2.59 SRS here a little bit of background of course the NBA uh, one of the NBA's charter franchises in the 90s also success in the 70s some decent years in the 80s as well but in the 90s they become one of kind of the the pinnacle teams they make the NBA finals obviously in 1996 they have Sean Kemp they have Gary Payton they're cool as hell everybody likes the logo they're they're an awesome fun team but uh, they obviously fall on some very very hard times in the post George Carl post Sean Kemp era uh, does not go very well uh, Paul Westfall is the new coach. He is fired pretty much immediately. <laughs> he comes in, uh, he, he jumps in. It does not go very well. He is uh, fired at the beginning of the 2001, uh, 2000, 2001 season, uh, replaced by Nate McMillan. Uh, in February 2001, Nate McMillan is established as the permanent head coach, which I guess very relevant as we're recording this today as, as somebody gets fired and Nate McMillan becomes the interim coach for the Atlanta Hawks yeah. as, as we're recording this. So there we go. There Nate McMillan go. always, always finding life in the NBA here, but, um, 2003 season sees really the, the the biggest trade and kind of the real end of of, of that entire era of the Sonics uh, as Seattle trades franchise mainstay Gary Payton to the Milwaukee Bucks in exchange for Ray Allen. Uh, that year also snaps the 11 year streak of uh, 500 seasons for the Seattle uh, SuperSonics as well. Uh, in 2004, they would once again finish below 500. This time, one of the worst seasons in decades uh, for Seattle as they finished 37 and 45. Uh, Ray Allen plays only 56 games that year, leads the team in scoring with 23 points per game. Uh, Richard Lewis, uh, he, he's very young at this time, but he's kind of starting to figure out what he is in the NBA. Another guy, again, like a big, tall guy that that could shoot. Uh, he starts to kind of really learn how to shoot and really kind of make the most of his skills. He gets uh, 17.8 points per game, 6.5 rebounds per game. Uh, they also have uh, Ronald Murray, Vlad Rad, Vladimir Ronovich, uh, Brent Berry, Jerome James, I believe pre-Isaiah giving him a gigantic bag of money for really no reason at, at all. And then pretty much out of nowhere with almost no major changes, they're really good. The next year they come in and they're really good. The biggest transaction is, I guess, trading for Danny Fortson, but I don't think that's enough to, you know, go from 37 and 45 to 52 and 30. Obviously, it helps that Ray Allen plays a full season. It helps that Richard Lewis continues to be good, but they don't really do a whole lot. Like they, they, you know, they draft Robert Swift with the 12th overall pick and we know for sure that that's not enough to explain them getting good all of a sudden because Robert Swift, one of the other, uh, you know, a, a very famous uh, NBA draft bust. But, but maybe I have a reason here, Jason. Because they changed divisions at this time. The 2004 Sonics, they play in the Pacific Division. But the 2005 Sonics, they play in the newly created Northwest Division. So we're going to look at the splits here and see if there's any difference. In 2004, in the Pacific Division, the Sonics go 11-13. and 13. In the 2005, the Northwest Division, they go 11-5. and 5. So they'd play a lot better in this new division. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe. But... I don't know. It doesn't really explain it either because the 2004 Pacific Division features two 50-win teams. you got the Lakers and the Kings. They're very good. It's hard to beat those teams in that era, but four teams below 500 as well. So not a ton of other really good, talented teams. The 2005 Northwest Division, though, they feature three teams above 500. Seattle, as we're saying here, Denver and Minnesota, but also a really terrible Blazers team and a really terrible Jazz team. So... I don't know if that's exactly it. I think the biggest key is probably just Richard Lewis becoming an actual dude. Uh, he starts scoring 20 points per game, 20.5 points per game this year. Uh, Ray Allen plays the entire season. That obviously helps. Their offensive rating and defensive rating are pretty much the same year over year. Their net rating improves from a negative you know, 0.7 to a plus 2.6. So essentially just their two best players play better. Their best player plays the entire year. 
that's why the Seattle Supersonics become a, a pretty good team. Maybe it helps beating up on the Blazers and the Jazz a little bit as well. But uh, that's that's that. But um, they go to the playoffs here. They defeat the Sacramento Kings. They advance to the 2005 Western Conference semifinals. Uh, they would then lose in six games to the uh, the the San Antonio Spurs. That time, the Tony Parker, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili uh, Spurs, of course, at this point. Uh, and then the uh, Spurs are going to go on to win the NBA Finals in the 2005 NBA Finals go and win that uh, season. Uh, and this is actually, um, believe it or not, as, as we're looking here at the 2005 Seattle Supersonics, this is the final time that this incarnation of the Seattle Supersonics would ever make the playoffs. Uh, during the uh, 2005 offseason, uh, Nate McMillan's going to leave. He's going to accept a, a job as, as the Portland Trailblazers head coach. Uh, and Seattle's going to obviously go through some turmoil. And then in a few years, they're going to be the Oklahoma City Thunder. So as far as we know right now, officially the Seattle Supersonics, this is the last time the Sonics have made the playoffs in 2005, but uh, we'll see. That might change here in the next uh, next few years. We'll see. I'll say, interesting uh, fact. So the Sonics Thunder franchise uh, never won fewer than 20 games, which was they won 20 games their final season in Seattle, uh, and have only four times won fewer than 30 games. That's pretty damn good. That's pretty consistent. And considering the amount of talent they were able to kind of acquire over the years, <laughs> you know, is, right. is that's pretty good. That's okay. Hey, yeah, that that is. Uh, I, I would you know, that put that up there in terms of track record. I, I've not dug into this, of course, but um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a bit of a surprise. Yeah, well, and you would have definitely thought like this current like incarnation of the Thunder, but they just keep being like okay. <laughs> you know, they just keep right. being like last yeah. year's team was was good, and and this year's yeah. team is like all right. Well, we're gonna get bad in purpose now, and they're like no, we're gonna be okay. It's like all right, fine, we're just gonna be okay then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're fourteen and twenty right now, so yeah, they're uh, trying. They're, they're really yeah. trying, but I don't I don't know. They might have enough talent. They, that's yeah. yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, no, like that, the, the Seattle Supersonics. I mean, you could always almost rely on them being okay. Like they're out there most of the seventies, most of the eighties, and of course in the nineties. It really bottoms out there in that early. 2000 but even then when we say bottoms out is like you know for them bottoming out is like 35 40 wins so that's uh that's pretty cool right yeah exactly uh that's uh yeah, that's interesting stuff so all right so now we're gonna dig and do uh, a handful of the others we're gonna take them by era so i'm gonna start off with the 50s and 60s um so First, we talk about the the 55 and 56 Warriors. 55 Warriors won 33 games, had a negative .19 SRS. 56 Warriors, 45 wins, 3.82 SRS, and were NBA champs. And really, the only major rotation change was the addition of Tom Gola. And Tom Gola was, I mean, he was a pretty big star in college, but he was kind of more like a role player star, like, you know, a, a Dennis Rodman or a Draymond Green, you know, somebody who, um, you know, played defense, passed, you know, was good all around player, um, a little bit less specialized than, than Rodman. But, um, but you know, he was a star on, kind of on that level as opposed to like, you know, um, a big score. I mean, he was fifth on the team in scoring, um, you know, but they had, um, you know, they'd already had, of course, you know, superstars like Paul Arizon and uh, Neil Johnson, Ole Haas, as we uh, like to call him, you know, and, you know, they had similar guys for a while, Jack George, Joe Grabowski, um, George Dempsey. So, uh, you know, kind of a roster of guys who'd been there for several years. But um, so this one exemption that we made to the can't switch coaches rule, they did have a new coach, George Sineski, but one, he had played for the team for, for from 47 to 54, so he'd been around that team forever. 
And two, the former coach, Eddie Gottlieb, was still the general manager and the owner. So I kind of consider that more of a continuation of the existing regime as opposed to, you know, uh, a big new change. You know, perhaps uh, I'll be faulted for making that exception. But uh, but nevertheless, there we go. Uh, And a fun fact from the 1955 team actually had two bit players, Larry Costello and Gene Chu, who ended up being feature all NBA different teams. So it's a that's a. Deep league right there when you got those guys on the bench. Yeah, just kind of chilling, doing nothing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, then the 1961 Lakers, uh, 1962 Lakers, 61, they were 36 and 43 uh, with a negative point eleven SRS. Um, 62, 54, and 26 with a 1.8 SRS. Um so the 62 team outperformed their SRS by nine games, which is a big, a big part of why this is such a big jump. They would have a 45 win team by, um, you know, by uh, win loss rating. Um, but, you know, really, again, pretty much the exact same team. Jerry West did have a bigger role in on the second year and was scoring more. He was a rookie the first year. So, yeah, I think some of it was coming out of his shell as a rookie. Elgin Baylor played awesomely, you know, 38.3 points per game and 18.6 rebounds per game. But he only played 48 games because of, uh, you know, military service obligations. So, uh, uh, famously, they, like, you know, kind of worked around his schedule and got, and got him to play as much as he could. So, uh, I think kind of one of those quirks of just outperforming their SRS, but just interesting one nonetheless. And uh, also the same season, 61 to 62, the Cincinnati Royals had a big improvement, went from 33 to 43 wins and went from a negative 3.04 SRS to a positive 1.28. Um, and yeah, this one is not, this one's really hard to explain out of, out of all these. Um, Oscar's first and second seasons were basically identical statistically. Like it wasn't like some sort of, you know, leap that was obvious, like West, uh, you know, he basically had almost the exact same numbers. I mean, he was up a bit in assists and rebounds per game, but had the exact same true shooting percentage, almost the exact same um, points per game and almost the exact same PER. So I, I have no doubt he, that he was better in ways that, you know, you can't capture in statistics, but still the numbers were, you know, not immediately different. You know, they added Adrian Smith and Bob Boozer had a slightly bigger role, but you Otherwise, you know, it was pretty much the same guys, Bucky Bachhorn, Jack Twyman, Wayne Embry. So um, interesting things. The uh, the 1967 Hawks and the 1968 Hawks, they go from 39 wins to 56 wins and a negative 1.44 SRS to a 2.73 SRS. Uh, another situation where uh, 68 was their last year in uh, St. Louis. They had Bill Bridges. They had... Lenny Wilkins, they had Zemo Beatty, Paul Silas, Joe Caldwell, Lou Hudson, who was, uh, I think, in his second season at that point. So, you know, pretty much the same guys. The, the only difference really was Don Ole ended up replacing Richie Garrett, who retired as a player but remained as a coach. Uh, another instance where they way outperformed their SRS uh, was uh, – Expected win-loss was 48 wins, and they won 56 games. So that was a big one. And then the weirdest one on here, the 1969 Pacers versus the 1970 Pacers. So the 69 Pacers won 44 games and had a 3.35 SRS. The 1970 Pacers won 59 games. Now, there were six more games between seasons, um, so that was part of the the win boost. But they had a 2.67 SRS. So – they had a significantly better record in 1970 than they had in uh, in 1969, despite having a worse SRS. So, uh, 
and you know the the key players, the the the, my, the best players, um, Roger Brown, Mel Daniels, Freda Lewis, and Bob Nedelicki actually remain the same. The a lot of the rest of the roster changed. So that that's sort of a weird uh, phenomenon. And, and if you look at the Pacers of this era, you know they they win three championships in four years, and you know made the finals several times. They won the championship in 1970, made the finals in '69. They would pretty consistently outperform their SRS um, all those seasons. So I, I feel like it might just be a team that just happened to be good at doing that. Although usually teams you know don't maintain that over a long period of time, but right, they, right. they're kind of an exception. So. Uh, definitely. Yeah, let's move to the 70s here. So we'll quickly go over some of these. The uh, 1970 Chicago Bulls to the 1971 Chicago Bulls. They go from a 39 and 43, uh, negative 1.71 SRS, all the way up to 51 and 31 with a 5.47 SRS. Uh, kind of addition by subtraction here. They dispense Clem Haskins, uh, but otherwise keep the same core group together. Uh, your Jerry Sloan, your Bob Love, your Chet Walker, your Tom Borwinkle, of course, your Bob Weiss. Uh, Norvine Lear comes along in 1972 to kind of put them over the top and make them one of the better uh, contenders. But uh, yeah, as far as like what made this team this big change, I think Sloan being a little bit healthier obviously helps. And I think just kind of being more familiar with each other. This is a team that was kind of slowly gelling, slowly acquiring talent here and there. And as like you said, the next year in 72, you had Norvine Lear and that just kind of gets things uh, off and running. Um, they were going to go to the Celtics here in 1971. Uh, 1972 and then 1973. So kind of three incremental jumps here uh, for the Celtics. Uh, 71, 44, and 38 with a 2.3 SRS. 1972, they go to 56 and 26. So a big jump here to a 4.38 SRS. And then obviously in 1973, a huge jump to 68 wins, 68 wins uh, and 14 losses, 7.35 SRS. Um, it's just pretty easy to explain, I think, in, in some ways. I mean, obviously, maybe that not, not maybe not super super easy, but you know, Dave Collins becoming a great player is obviously a big factor. It's not really a giant leap for him. You know, he has 17 points uh, per game, 15 rebounds per game, uh, 15 point or 15.4 PR as a rookie. Then jumps that up into uh, 20.5 points per game, 16.2 rebounds per game, uh, 18.1 PR on his MVP season. Uh, the big change there, uh, Paul Sauer was coming in in 1972. Uh, between 72 and 73, I should say, kind of gets them over the hump. But otherwise, kind of, you know, the same core group there. John Havlicek, you know, JoJo, Chaney, Nelson, Art Williams, uh, Hank Finkel, Satch Sanders, kind of the same guys. But I think Dave Collins becoming like a, an actual dude, uh, combining him with John Havlicek really kind of gets uh, the Celtics yeah. over the hump there, I, I, I think, more than anything. But, yeah, just a remarkable jump in two years to go from 44 to 68 and, and you know, obviously become one of the charter, one of the better teams in the league. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, it was another thing where the Cowans, again, I'm sure, especially given his skills on defense and given his skills as a team player, there's a lot that's not being captured there in the stats. But yeah, you would kind of expect the numbers to leap out a little bit more given the vast improvement, given the fact that they had, you know, a a lot of continuity, except for the addition of um, Silas, obviously, you know, but um, yeah, that one I just kind of thought was interesting. And to do it over, you know, two two seasons again is obviously pretty remarkable. I don't think we saw anything that was similar to that. No, no, to go from like just kind of middling team to being, you know, without like adding LeBron James, you know what I mean? Without adding like, you know, a a tremendous player out of nowhere. Yeah, you don't see in two years going from just like a a middling team to being like a, a. uh, 68 wins. I mean, Jesus, that's a hell of a, hell of a jump yeah. there from 44 to 68 in two years. So sure. uh, we'll move on now to the 1972 Denver Rockets. 
Rockets. Yes, Denver Rockets of the 1973 uh, Denver Rockets. 34 and 50 in 72, uh, negative 0.3 SRS. So the 1973 Denver Rockets, where they go 47 and 37 with the 2.8 SRS. A uh, big thing here, probably Warren Jabali uh, getting out of the team. He averages 17 points per game, 5.2 rebounds per game, 6.6 assists per game, 2.1 steals per game. I love Warren Jabali's game, just uh, kind of an everything yeah. uh, game. A guy that you could definitely see in like today's NBA really working uh, great and being a just a tremendous player. But, uh, you know, some other mostly same key players on, on both teams, Ralph Simpson, uh, Julius Key, uh, Byron Back, Al Smith, Marv Roberts, kind of the same guys uh, here and there. Uh, 1972 team actually has the uh, the final season of Larry Brown as a player. I always kind of – it's so weird because like Larry Brown's such a stuck-up kind of dude that like you forget <laughs> right. that he played basketball and was like right. a pretty yeah. good player too. You know what I mean? Like not yeah. just an absolute bum, but it's just like – because you see him and he just looks like the oldest, lamest human being on earth as like a head coach. But yeah, he was a, a, a okay player, you know, and, and he'd go on to coach pretty quickly, you know, immediately after uh, to go coach the Carolina Cougars. But uh, yeah, final season as a player here. Uh, but uh, uh, Jabali, who, who played a bunch of different places in the ABA, uh, two-time All-Star for Denver, though. So when he was in Denver, he was he was probably at his best there. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and his career would end fairly quickly after that too. You know, he, he was really good player. I, I think he kind of had the reputation of being hard to get along with, and mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why he bounced around um, a lot. Um, you know, and obviously, uh, you, the, you know, outspoken black players were not uh, necessarily favored by management uh, during uh, that time. You may have noticed that right. right, and only during that time because. After that, they uh, were very well yeah. accepted for the rest of NBA history until today. Right. Obviously, but, where, where you know owners and fans alike just absolutely love when yeah, uh, black people speak up about the issues that <laughs> affect them directly. But you know, yeah, sure. great. Um, 1974 Capital Bullets. Uh, to the 1975 Washington Bullets. I guess just changing the name to Washington was was the key here because uh, yeah. they have 47 wins when they're the Capital Bullets. They have a 1.19 SRS. Then they become the Washington Bullets. They get 60 wins out of nowhere, 6.53 SRS. So just being represented by Washington really kind of helped these guys. But uh, more likely, it's you know healthier and better play from Wes Unseld, who's kind of coming into his own right here. Uh, the team also, they lose Archie Clark in many leagues. Uh, but they add Jimmy Jones and uh, Truck Robinson, both both solid players. But uh, yeah, Unseld becoming a, a, a you know kind of finding himself and, and becoming a, a healthier all around player is, is is probably the key there. Other than obviously change from the cap, the, the terrible name of the Capital Bullets to the better name of the Washington Bullets. So. Okay. Uh, this one's strange. Okay. <laughs> the 1975 Warriors to the 1976 Warriors. So the 1975 Warriors, they're 48 and 34. They have a 2.86 SRS. Unfortunately, they win the NBA title this year, though, right? So right. they win, they beat the Bullets, they sweep the Bullets. One of the, the all-time biggest upsets uh, in NBA history here is the the, the Warriors, uh, Golden State Warriors, win the NBA championship here. They improve in 1976. They go to 59 wins and 23 losses, a 6.23 SRS. Uh, big changes here. Uh, they lose Butch Beard. They, uh, uh, you know, add Gus Williams. Phil Smith takes a bigger role as the number two scorer. Uh, and we become an all NBA uh, player this year as well. And, uh, yeah, you think, man, they won the NBA title last year. They got a little bit better. Well, they lost in the Western Conference finals to the Phoenix Suns. So, um, a very weird thing here where they're actually, they improved, but got worse, uh, in, in terms of not winning the NBA title in this next year. But, uh, a, a strange, the first instance I could, I think the only instance we have of, of the, the team, the prior team, the team that they improved on, uh, actually winning a title and then the team that improves, uh, bowing out in the playoffs pretty early so a very very strange one here with the warriors yes yeah fun little tangent is the next year 1977 team they had phil smith you know Mm -hmm. just been all nba they had gus williams they had jamal wilkes who'd been you know all-star i think all nba as well and then ricky robert parish all of them under 24 
And that's a pretty fascinating what if, if they keep those guys together and like, you know, the, the, you know, are they, do they replace the Sonics as the uh, late seventies champions or, you know, do they compete with, you know, potentially the Blazers or the Lakers? I mean, that, that is a, that's, that's a group if they can keep together, I, I think is sort of a fascinating, and they lose all those guys, you know, within the next, you know, two or three years, um, just sort of kind of crazy. Uh, 1976 Sixers will be our last one here of the 70s. 1979 Sixers, 47 wins, 35 losses, 1.74 SRS. To the 1980 Sixers, 59 wins, 23 losses, 4.04 SRS. Uh, roster pretty much the same. Obviously, you got Julius Irving, you got Caldwell Jones, Bobby Jones, Maurice Cheeks, Daryl Dawkins, Henry Bibby. Um, you know, kind of all the guys. That, the, the real big key, I would say, Lionel Holland's coming in in midseason trade, but more likely it's just kind of everybody kind of forming together and and and, and you know, kind of just figuring out um, what they were you know what they were trying to do and and, and figure out where you know where things were going to go. Uh, Doug Collins gets his role reduced a little bit in 1980, so maybe that helps. You know, not playing Doug Collins more. Right. Steve Mix is, is on that team as well, uh, so they're a talented team. It just kind of needed to kind of form and and, and get together. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I have like a distinct, definite reason why this team improved as much as they did. And obviously, we'd see over the, the course of the next few years. Obviously, 83. You know, adding Moses Malone is going to be a big reason why they're going to improve and, and and go where they go. But um, you know, yeah, a, a, a team that I don't know, just everybody kind of getting older, getting more mature, getting a little bit better. Uh, but just a solid, solid core uh year over year there yeah well they they get cheeks you know cheeks had been i think he was a rookie in 79 he plays more in 80 uh irving plays better he he, um i I think he's a bit healthier as well he kind of battled some injuries for a couple years there uh ankle injury i think so um yeah collins you know who was a good player when he was healthy but was hurt a lot you know i think reducing his role a bit in letting other guys step up. Yeah. I mean, it was the same mix of guys roughly, but they, you know, different guys got more minutes and different guys got less minutes. So it was mm-hmm. more kind of rotating the pieces around a little bit. Right. So. Playing the better players more and, and playing Doug Collins less is, is probably right. <laughs> what yeah. helped a little bit. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry, Doug. Doug but, I mean, slander here. It's all right. I mean, playing Daryl Dawkins and Morris cheeks more, I think is it probably was a better idea. So was a better day. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Going to the 1980s, the 1980 Knicks and versus 81 Knicks. In, in 1980, they won 39 games with a negative .96 SRS, 81 50 wins with a with a 2.00 SRS, and yeah, they just kind of had a good young core that ended up you know improving. Michael Ray Richardson, Bill Cartwright, or Ray Williams, all those guys. Um, you know, were talented youngsters and look that they might have a strong future. Unfortunately, that was uh, better for some than others. They also had a healthy Marvin Webster. They'd got in for, you know, got in for agency a couple years before, but had been battling injuries and unfortunately would continue to battle them. But in 1981, he had to, he was healthy. And they also added Cavs, small forward, Campy Russell in uh, for agency, who also unfortunately battled injuries after going to uh, the Knicks, but had a, a, a strong season there in 1981. So, um, you know, kind of a, a one season of you know strong play, and they kind of would go back to being middling and not very good until the uh, Patrick Ewing era emerges, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, also, the same season, uh, nineteen eighty um, Bucks win forty nine games with a three point five seven SRS, eighty one Bucks sixty and twenty two seven point one four. So this is one of the situations that is most like the Jazz situation that we are seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Core pieces are the same. You know, you got uh, Junior Bridgman, you got Marcus Johnson, of course, you got Bob Lanier. He he came over a trade in in maybe so this is his first full season with mm-hmm. the Bucks, which probably helped a bit. Uh, Sidney Moncrief, uh, I think, was in his second season in '81. Don Nelson still the coach there, so you know you you have a lot of continuity. I think Nelson might be in his second or third season as coach, so you know he's I'm sure improving in that respect, but. The one perhaps most significant difference is they change conferences. They go from the West to the East as, you know, Dallas comes into the league, realignment occurs. Curtis Harris just recently wrote um, a really good piece for um, his Probes History newsletter that you can check out for more on that. I know we've talked about in previous shows, but in yeah, 1980, the Bucks went 39 and 21 against the West and 10 and 12 against the East. In I eighty one, they went forty one and seventeen against the East and nineteen and five against the West. So uh, they actually had a much better winning percentage against the uh, West in fewer games. So I don't know if that actually helped or not, but yeah, they, I don't maybe, know. it's strange. Better, you know, um, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's uh, hard to say. Yeah, they ended up losing in the uh, semifinals because they were like three sixty win sixty winish teams in the. Um, East that year, the Sixers and the Bucks and the Celtics all finished with very similar record totals and very similar SRS. I think the uh, the Bucks actually had the best SRS of uh, all. I guess the Sixers had a slightly better one uh, that year. But yeah, the, the the Celtics and Sixers had sixty two wins and the Bucks had sixty wins uh, that year. So uh, very uh, dominant East team. So yeah, uh, regular season wise, being in the East wasn't so bad, but uh, playoff wise, unfortunately, it uh, ended up hurting them. So, yeah. So who knows? It's kind of a chicken egg thing. Is it because they moved to the different conference that they got good or were they just a better team? It's, it's hard to it's hard to say there. But uh, yeah, yeah it, 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 it's tough. But uh, it would be the yeah. first of many switches between. Uh, yes. And, and, and obviously, uh, you know, a lot of these teams you've talked about, you know, they kind of, you know, fell back to earth the, the previous seasons. But the Bucks, you know, remained uh, you know, strong for the rest of the decade, yeah. winning 50, 50 every season. So that definitely wasn't a flash in the pan for uh, them. So, um Moving on to 1983-1984, the Jazz. They win 30 games and have a negative 4.2 SRS in 83. In 84, they win 45 games and have a, uh, a .81 positive SRS. This is the first Jazz team in either Utah or New Orleans to make the uh, playoffs in almost a full decade uh, in the league. Uh, and, yeah, the top eight guys were returnees from the uh, prior season. Um now they did have Adrian Dantley, you know, fully healthy. He'd only played about a quarter of the season the uh, year before, um, so that helped. But then again, you know, they Dantley had been healthy, you know, in prior seasons, and the Jazz had been bad all that time. So that wasn't, you know, it entirely. You know, uh, they did have a lot more playing time for Mark Eaton, you know, who um, of course, you know, was their uh, great, uh, you know, shot blocker, defensive center. You know, Ricky Ge- Ricky Green, Daryl Griffith, Thurl Barely, you know, Rich Kelly. Um, you know, all contributing pretty well. John Drew, you know, kind of at the end of his career, but actually, you know, plays pretty well off the uh, bench at, at that point. So, you know, they uh, they managed to, um, you know, still be solid. They, they lost uh, Danny Shays and Ben Paquette from the prior year, so perhaps they were dragging them down. But, yeah, um, obviously, a, uh, you know, about to transition into the uh, the uh, Stockton Malone era, but this was the, the first, you know, re- pretty good uh, jazz team to uh, make, make the playoffs and kind of kick off that era. Uh, and, uh, 85 and 86 Hawks, uh, they go from 34 wins to 50 wins from a negative 1.14 SRS to, to positive 2.59. Um, you know, pretty much the, uh, same top six, of course, led by Dominique Wilkins. This would be his first all-star game, um, 
in the league. Uh, he would also lead the league in points per game going from 27.4 to 30.3 and improved uh, box score plus minus went from 2.2 to 4.2. So definitely, you know, improving fundamentally. The, the, the numbers were better overall as well. Um, but, you know, that basically otherwise it was the same Randy Whitman, Doc Rivers, Kevin Willis, Tree Rollins, uh, Cliff Livingston, um, Eddie Johnson. They did um, – also add uh, John Konkak and uh, and Spud Webb. John Konkak was sort of a uh, you know uh, a, a bad name in Hawks history for a long time, but he did actually contribute fairly well. <laughs> right, yeah, for 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 a multitude of reasons, unfortunately, but yeah, a solid player that uh, became kind of infamous for for some bad reasons. So. Yes. So uh, then the uh, the Knicks. Speaking of the Patrick Ewing era, kind of really starts coming into his own in from eighty eight to eighty nine, and in eighty eight they win thirty eight games. Uh, 0.14 SRS in uh, 1989, 52 and 30 with a 3.62 SRS. You know, as we uh, we get, we get uh, we get Ewing, you know, emerging. Uh, also, you know, Rick Pitino. Um, you know, he's second year as coach. The uh, the the team plays uh, faster and uh, kind of more exciting brand of uh, basketball. For before Pat Riley would uh, slow things down and make everything boring in the uh, mid 90s. Um, yeah, Joe Wilkins is sort of st- stops trying to score so much. Mark Jackson gets better. Uh, they they do add Kiki Vanaway, but he's kind of thirty and past his prime, and not really you know like a you know a huge part of the team. You know, mm-hmm. playing eighteen points per game, so so not really you know they got Rod Strickland as well. So, uh, but he's you know deeply on the bench as well. So, um, you know, just kind of a uh, you know a lot of it, of course, is just Ewing um, getting better. You know, Oakley kind of you know finding his role there after the trade. So. Um, and then uh, the 89 to 90 Pacers going from 28 wins, negative three SRS to 42 wins and slightly negative 0.18 SRS. Uh, and, you know, they, this is still, you know, obviously Reggie Miller is emerging as the star, although I, I would say that Chuck Person kind of still the bigger star at that point. Oh, that would change, you know, very um, quickly. Uh, they also, you know, they got Vern Fleming, the legendary Vern Fleming. Oh, of they, course, yeah. uh, Detlef Shrimp, Rick Smits is in a, in a second year there. Uh, Mike Sanders, our favorite, uh, our, our favorite player, keeping his teams above average. That a lot Mike of, yeah, a lot of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I wonder how many. I wonder how much percentage of uh, of people listening understand that joke. But uh, oh, well, hopefully see. you do. We're not going to explain it for you, but there you go. Yeah, I, I love, it. I love um, it. Jason. I love it, and that's all that matters. All right, so. all right. Um, Ricky Green also uh, in there. Uh, they had lost Herb Williams and uh, Wayman Tisdale. It was also the first full season as Pacers coach for Dick uh, for Sachi. He had taken over fairly early in the 89 season. So, um, yeah, after uh, – actually, he was their fourth coach in that season after <laughs> Jack Ramsey, Mel Daniels, and George Irvine. So, uh, so yes, um, so they managed to get them over uh, 500. And, and they'd been you know, struggling franchise for a long time. So that was kind of the first of what would become better days for the Pacers under, uh, under Reggie Miller. Uh, and then finally, capping off the 80s is the uh, 89 to 1990 Blazers. The 89 Blazers, 39 wins, 0.92 SRS. Uh, then 1990 Blazers, 59 wins, a 6.48 SRS. So quite a big jump there. Of course, they would make the finals, losing to the um, Pistons in the 1990 finals. 
Uh, Rick Adelman replaced coach Mike Schuler during the, the middle of 1989 season. He actually went 14 and 21. Schuler had a positive record as a uh, coach. Uh, Schuler, I think, was feuding with uh, Clyde Drexler at the time and, and not well liked. So Adelman was a more friendly coach. But yeah, they basically had the same core Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, and Kim Douglas. They did add Buck Williams. That was actually a fairly major addition. Maybe that wouldn't officially count on this one, but why not? I was going to talk about it anyway. 13.6 points per game, 9.8 rebounds per game for, for Williams. So less of a role than he had in New Jersey, but obviously an important part of the team. Also add rookies Clifford Robinson, who, who as we talked about recently in the show commemorating his uh, career, um, did actually play a lot as a rookie. And they also draw some Petrovich, who did not play much as a rookie, and then ended up going to the Nets a few seasons later. All right, so now let's get into the 90s and the 2000s last year. Uh, we'll start out with the 1991 Warriors to the 1992 Warriors, 44 and 38, 1.72 SRS in 1991. The 1992 Warriors, 55 wins, 27 losses, 3.77 SRS. And, and this one's a little bit interesting because there is a major change that happens in the offseason, but that major change is the exact opposite of what you think would happen because the Warriors, they trade future Hall of Famer Mitch Richmond for old-ass Billy Owens. He wasn't that old. I don't know what he was. <laughs> What was he at this time? Like 31? I think, like he, I think he was actually fairly young. He just uh, was never any of that. <laughs> he wasn't as good but, as Mitch Richmond. So, yeah, I, I, it's right. hard to be smirch uh, Billy Owens, whether he was young or old. I, to me, I guess he always, I always thought he was old, but I guess he wasn't actually old. But, uh, yeah. So, anyway, they trade Mitch Richmond for Billy Owens, and yeah. they get a lot better. A lot better. <laughs> they went 55 wins, kind of set the stage for, for that early Warriors um, uh, run that they would have for a couple of years until, obviously, things would Completely fall off the rails sure. uh, in the sure. mid not to late uh, 90s. Uh, but. For the record, Billy Owens was 22. So. Oh, boy. Okay. Really? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. 22. All right. Well, never mind then. There you go. Maybe I was thinking Billy, Billy Ocean. I don't know. Maybe uh, I was, I, you know, I was probably thinking of Billy Ocean. Was he really 22? <laughs> he was Man. 22. All right. Well, sorry. Um, didn't he always look old? I feel like he looked old. Yeah. It's kind of chunky maybe that's why i don't know anyway, sorry to uh be smirch billy owens there but apparently he was a, a key piece to making this warriors team uh great yeah. but uh, yeah mitch richmond sent out billy owens is sent in and they improve significantly year over year uh move on to the rockets here uh two times uh, as well kind of similar to uh, uh, t- uh the cavaliers uh, we talked about earlier uh 1990 the rockets go 41 and 41 1991 they go 52 and 30 a uh, big change there is they had kenny smith i don't know if that's enough to you know go from a, a 500 team to a 52 win team. But, you know, anyway, they had Kenny Smith. That helps a little bit. 1992 Rockets, they go from 42 and 40. So they, they get back up to 52 wins in 1991 and they fall back to earth in, in 1992 to 42 and 40. And then in 1993, they had, uh, Robert Ory and they all have the, also had their first full year, uh, with Rudy Tomjanovich as the coach. So that probably hap, you know, plays a, a, a decent role in it. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of inexplainable. If, if it was just one time where they kind of popped up and it's like, all right, well, whatever, everybody kind of gelled. But for them to kind of pop up there in 1991 and then fall back to earth in 1992 and then come back up in 1993 and then obviously in 94 and 95 win the title is, is, is pretty unique, uh, there. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the exact reason for that because kind of a similar roster. Uh, I guess, you know, one of the keys might be, uh, Rudy T being able to kind of talk to Hakeem, Hakeem buying in fully after years of him not really buying in, uh, and, and feeling like kind of a pariah there in, in Houston. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's kind of strange. I don't think Kenny Smith and Robert Ori explain it all, uh, for how no. this team goes from 40 wins to 50 plus, you know. You know, interestingly enough, the 91 season where they were 52 and 30, Hakeem only played 56 games. So, um, 
and he, he he played 70 the next year when they were 42 to 40. Yeah, and he which, played, he which fuels a lot of the, great. you know, if, and, and we've talked about it in prior episodes as well. It fuels a lot of sure. the, hey, this guy's, you know, kind of the, the Ewing effect or whatever Bill Simmons, the right. hell, whatever the hell he calls it. Um, right. Is that what he calls it? Uh, whatever the dumb Ewing thing uh, that he, theory uh, that he Ewing, has. Ewing, Ewing theory. theory. It's the Ewing theory. Yeah. Whatever the hell. It's dumb. Uh, regardless, yeah, it, it, like if you go and read stuff at the time, and I know that uh, uh, SB Nation, or I think Secret Base, uh, their, their new uh, YouTube channel, has a great uh, video. I think Seth Rosenthal did it about uh, the, the Hakeem Olajuwon era in, in Houston and how close it came in this 1992 season when, like, yeah, 1991, he doesn't play as many games and, they, and they're pretty good. 1992, he comes back fully. They're not as good. It's like this, hey, do we really need this guy? Is this guy really what we want to build our team around, which absolutely seems ridiculous given, you know, what would happen in 94 and 95. Uh, but, but yeah, a lot of credit to Rudy Tomjanovich and, and Houston for kind of keeping it all together, saying, no, Hakeem, stay here. We want you here. You're part of our future. You're part of the core, and you're going to win. You know, you're going to win MVPs, and you're going to win uh, NBA titles. And he would do that. He would win MVPs, and he would win NBA titles in the next uh, few years as well. But we're not done with the Rockets yet. We're going to jump all the way to the 2000, uh, 34 and 48 in the year 2000, negative point five seven SRS. Then in 2001, they jump all the way up to 45 wins and 37 losses, two point seven one SRS. Pretty much the exact same roster, with the exception of. Not having Charles Barkley, who at this point was really just kind of a, a drain uh, in the team in a, in a lot of different ways here. He plays only 20 games uh, in 2000. So not a huge deal, but, you know, getting him out of there uh, and, and, and sort of just building around young players. Uh, they added Maurice Taylor as well, but uh, not, not really enough to kind of put them over the hump. But but probably Steve Francis getting a little bit better. Uh, just some things here and there that kind of, you know, got the Rockets back on uh, on track here after some pretty bad years. Sure, and they still had Olajuwon at this point. Uh, he, was, he was, he obviously playing a, a lesser sure, role. Right, right. right. Mobley, Shannon Anderson, uh, and Kenny Thomas, of course, legendary, and when Walt Williams, of course, the wizard. So, of course, uh, yeah, and 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 if you're trying to you know do the math there and say, well, hey, when did Yao Ming come in there? Well, the next year they got back up to 28 losses <laughs> or 28 wins, I should say. So, right, right. Uh, yeah, this is kind of a blip where it's like, hey, this team's kind of good, and then it's like, oh wait, no, 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 we're bad. We're actually really, really bad. So uh, that would allow them to get Yao, and then obviously get the building blocks for, for the next, uh, you know, decent to good uh, Houston Rockets teams. Uh, we'll jump ahead here. 2008 to the Cleveland Cavaliers, the 20, uh, 2008 Cavaliers, 45 wins, 37 losses, negative 0.53 SRS. And then the 2009 Cavs, 66 wins, 16 losses, 8.68 SRS. One of the kind of the, the better teams of all time here in this 2009 Cavaliers. And, you know, in terms of major stuff, when we say major, quote unquote, major deals here, the Cavs do kind of rework the team around LeBron James. Obviously, you have LeBron James. You have a team that went to the finals the year prior in 2007. Uh, you have Anderson Verja. You got Zildjunas Ilgauskas. You got Booby Gibson. You got Sasha Pavlovich. You have a few other guys. Well, in this offseason, they really, really kind of get things together. Uh, they bring in Joe Smith. They bring in Ben Wallace. They bring in Delonte West. They bring in Wally Zerbiak. This is really, uh, you know, offseason in the 2009 offseason, they bring in Mo Williams as well. This is just like the, we're going all in. We need to do everything we can to keep LeBron here and get LeBron, you know, a, a, a title and get him to the, you know, the promised land. And this, that, that, this, I, I and for people that weren't around during this time, the 2009 Cavs team felt like it was the one where it was finally going to all kind of come together for LeBron. He had a, he had the guys, he had the team around him. Uh, obviously, it did not work out uh, very well in this first Cavs run. Did not work out the way they wanted it to, but. 
you know, we, this one might be a little bit of cheating because there were kind of quote unquote major changes. But at the end of the day, the core and the, the top player was still kind of there. It was just kind of building around that guy with a, a Ben Wallace, who at this point had kind of, uh, you know, petered out a little bit. It's Alante West, who's a good role player. Wally Zerbiak, not near his peak, but a decent role player. And Joe Smith, of course, you know, never really kind of a great player, but, but a decent role player uh, as well. So just a lot of pieces coming together and LeBron kind of becoming a next level great player uh, during this era too. kind of helps them go from 45 wins all the way up to 66. Right. And, and, you know, I think the key thing is that, you know, I mean, that trade was, you know, midseason trade and, um, you know, getting, getting Wallace and Smith and Delonte and Wallace Zerbiak. And, um, I mean, you know, they were not significantly better after that trade. I mean, um, you know, they, they, they um, you know, took, took Boston to seven games, but, um, but yeah, they definitely, that, that trade did not immediately look like, like bank gangbusters, but yeah, but they played so well for that in next season with only really adding Will Williams that, yeah. Um, and Williams at the time, I think there was potential, there was thought that he would become a bigger, not that he was going to be like a Dwayne Wade level star, obviously, but you know, there was potential. I think that he could be like, Oh yeah. You know, okay. Star level player. And they had guys who complimented LeBron, but they, if they, you know, could have just gotten that one, you know, um, that that one really good player, you know, maybe they would have had a chance to win that, uh, to, to win the championship, to be be beyond a a really good regular season, or mm-hmm. actually one of the better regular season teams of all time. Yeah, of course. yeah, just a, yeah. an incredible, incredible yeah. regular season team there. But then, uh, unfortunately, the Orlando Magic and their hey four shooters and a dominant Dwight Howard came, and that uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> became, right. became an issue when uh, you have Zildjian Rusalgaskis and Anderson Verjao, and you're trying to chase you know Hito Turgaloo and Richard Lewis around the court. Did not go well. Or, no. Did not go well. No. Uh, 2014 Hawks to the 2015 Hawks. Ah, a team we love talking about here, these 2015 Hawks. They go from 38 and 44 with a negative 0. 0.8, uh, uh, 0.88 SRS to the 2015 Hawks. 60 wins, 22 losses, 4.75 SRS. Uh, big additions here. Tabo uh, Cephalosha, Kent Bazemore are both added, both under 20 points per game, or 20 minutes per game, I should say, both off the bench. The same starting five. It just kind of came together, man. It just all worked for the 2015 Hawks. They were a machine. I love this team. I don't care what anybody says. I like this 2015 Hawks. Yeah, anybody who whines about the four All-Stars or the five players of the yeah. month can, can they go down. You're a dork. Get out of here. This team rules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. That's all I have to say about that team. They rule. Yeah, right. They rule, yeah. And then all they weren't that good forever. after that, but, <laughs> but that's well, all right. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. We had fun. I Hey, I love I remember watching that. I, I went to a game between them and the Chicago Bulls in 2015, and it was amazing yeah. to watch that team play. They were just like a, all in sync, all just running great plays back and forth. Just, yeah. Like, that, that, you know, yeah, whatever. You're a yeah, dork if you don't think that they deserve their old all stars. That, there you that, go. That uh, that game where they that game where they beat the Warriors, man. That was that was one of the most fun I've ever yeah, had watching yeah. basketball. That was that was an incredible game. They so. just dissected them. Yeah, it was it was yeah, awesome. I mean, that was, yeah, that, that was awesome. I mean, both teams just played awesome. You yeah, know, it yeah. was one of those you know special things. So, yeah. All right, a few more teams here. 2015 Heat, they win 37 games and 45 losses. 2016 Heat, they improved to 48 and 34. Uh, pretty much the same core: Bosh, Dragic, Wade. Hassan Whiteside, the wall dang, Tyler Johnson, uh, the big additions, Justice Winslow, and of course, the biggest addition, 24 games of seven time all star Joe Johnson. So, um, there you go. So cool. That's, yeah. That's that team. But, uh, yeah, it's the Heat. I mean, they, they're, they seem like they should have been on this list a lot more because this is a team that just kind of always seems to consistently get better, even though, like, they don't really do anything major all that often. But, uh, yeah, just a kind of a, you know, Justice Winslow, Joe Johnson. I don't know. There you go. 
2017 Pelicans to the 2018 Pelicans. This is a, a very recent one that we remember here. 34 and 48 the prior year. Jump all the way to 48 and 34. Flip the record uh, upside down. I uh, play at the NBA's fastest pace uh, during that 2018 season. That's basically when, you know, I, I, I think Alvin Gentry just decided, you know what? Screw it. Let's just run. Let's see what can happen. And their, impro- their, their offense improved a ton. They went from 26th in the league in offense all the way to 10th in the league in offense. They did add Rajon Rondo, which I guess ended up being ma- at the time it wasn't major because Rondo was obviously probably at his lowest point uh, ever uh, after the terrible, terrible run in Dallas where Rick Harlow Bi- <laughs> basically says, go away and never come back. You're off the team. Get out of here, buddy. Uh, he goes to the Pelicans and uh, not a major deal at the time, but ended up you know fitting in perfectly with this team. Uh, DeMarcus Cousin had been acquired the, the prior year. Uh, Anthony Davis kind of in his, what I would call his you know first peak in, until obviously these Laker years and, and a really good seasons from Drew Holiday as well. So just kind of DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis coming together. Uh, Alvin Gentry deciding, hey, let's run with it. Rajon Rondo coming in being the perfect fit and Drew Holiday improving kind of gets this team to go from, you know, perennial loser uh, to at least one decent year until, well, then the next year when. It doesn't all go well in Anthony Davis' side. You know what? I'm done. <laughs> I don't think this team's good anymore, and I'm done playing yeah. for you. So, um, yep. And then our final year here, the 2018 New Jersey. Oh, sorry, Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I'm thinking New Jersey. I like. I, I don't know. I'm always thinking New Jersey Nets. 28 and 54, negative yeah. 3.67 SRS. The 26, uh, 2019 Brooklyn Nets, 42 and 40, a negative 0.4 SRS. So this is like you know this team became. Okay, after being terrible, uh, you know, we try to pick teams that were like really, really good and then you know, really, really bad and then turn really, really good or whatever. But this one's a, a, a decent one to uh, uh, to kind of mention here. Uh, the big key here is they trade for D'Angelo Russell, which, again, is not that big of a deal on its face in 2018. Uh, but he emerges as an all star. The team just kind of gels. Everybody kind of comes together. It's kind of this land of misfit toys here for the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, yeah, the top eight all move over from the prior year to this 2019 team, uh, including D'Angelo Russell. And it just kind of, you know, it just, it, it just works. It just all kind of works. It all kind of comes together. They're a nice hustling team. They overachieve. Kenny Atkinson's got them playing right. And then obviously they decide, you know what? Screw all this. Let's get Kyrie Irving. And uh, that's a, uh, well, we'll see. I, we'll see. We're, we're to be decided. We'll, we'll see what happens there. But uh, obviously adding Kevin Durant and, and, and James Harden will, will probably help a little bit as well. So probably, yeah, that might not be too bad. Yeah, we'll see. They're probably better than forty-two to forty. I'm gonna. I think. I think that's. Yeah, it's a bold take, Jason. But I, I, I think you might be onto something there. Yeah. All right. I appreciate that, Rich. So, all right. Well, that's uh, that's it. That's uh, that's a lot of NBA history we just uh, dug through there. But that was uh, some fun teams that I had uh, not known or uh, thought about in a uh, in a long time. So. Who knew you were going to be talking about the 1973 Denver Rockets? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, you never know. You right. never know. Yeah. And the, you never know. And and you know, we will always try to talk about the 2015 Atlanta Hawks, and we, we did it yeah. again. So we didn't talk Absolutely. about your favorite Hawks team because they didn't improve; they just continued to be bad. But hey, anyway, that, that's true. Yeah, we we officially <laughs> uh, we officially did not include them. Uh, the, America's team, the, uh, the, the 2005 Atlanta Hawks, officially America's team. I just, yeah, uh, I, I think yeah, the Dallas Cowboys because of their their run of ineptitude in the uh, in the early 2000s and and, and still today, uh, they are no longer America's team, and officially it is the 2005 Atlanta Hawks. So congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, so yes, everyone, uh, thank you for uh, continuing to listen and enjoy the program. You can find us at the Step Back at Fansided. All kinds of good uh, podcast and uh, and uh, other goodness is uh, there. NBA goodness, articles, writings, essays, pieces, things that are uh, good. I'm having surely coming up with the words to describe words there for a second. But uh, you can listen to us at uh, all the uh, other podcast services, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Uh, please uh, 
uh, review, uh, rate, and uh, subscribe to us there and uh, let us know how we're doing. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So thanks again for listening, and we will be back again soon.